0: Hello, and welcome back to Metastation for our recap of episode 504, Pandora's Box. I'm Claire. I'm a writer who is currently in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> Ooh, she's so fancy, oh, you guys. So fancy. Los Angeles.
1: She's in Los Angeles meeting with her publisher. Ooh. <laughs> she's lunching with her publisher. Too good for us just little English professors in Mississippi. Can't believe she's even talking to me. Oh and my name is Erin in case this is the first <laughs> podcast of ours you ever listened to and you don't know who we are I'm Erin <laughs> I slept, you guys, this week. I'm not like Yay! so completely sleep deprived. Last week, I um, forgot to select the correct mic when I was recording, so my sound was all jacked up. And then, like, I only have very fuzzy memories of of our uh,
0: podcast last week. It's like all sort of a blur. <laughs> but this week, we had fun. sleeping a normal amount. I am sharp as a tack, and so. we have so much stuff to say. We just absolutely loved this episode. we I mean, we're loving the whole season so far it's been kind of amazing like everything that everybody said about how good these first four episodes were was true and not even a little bit hyperbolic which is amazing yeah it really is like it really is that consistently strong and this was incredible and opened up so much new like this really was i think the game changer kind of opening up all kinds of new avenues for characters and really bringing every one of the three worlds crashing in together which is super exciting so we'll talk a little bit more as we go about the intersection of all these different Worlds, But we're going to start up on the arc because we really didn't get a chance so much in the last episode to dig in as deeply as we would have liked to to Raven's decision to stay on the arc, Murphy's decision to stay with her kind of their evolving dynamic. And because we really dive back into that in some interesting ways in this episode, I think there's lots from both of those episodes to say about those two. Yeah, so let's talk about Raven.
1: Raven. Man, when she put that Raven up on the screen, oh when she was my acting against Zeke God. again, I was just like, that was wonderful. Ugh. But yeah, I think we should start maybe a little bit and, you know, sort of back up into last episode since we didn't get to talk about mm-hmm. that much. And her decision to stay behind. And, and I think, yeah, I mean... I guess it's kind of hard to go back. We can't really go back to that and talk about it in a vacuum, but we did actually get some nice new reflection on that on her decision and on Murphy's decision this week, I thought. Mhm. Both with Murphy's and I don't know if it's really was if it was a confession to Raven or what it was, but that moment, you know, they had later in the episode where he told her You know, I thought that was like, that was a fascinating moment. It was kind of a perfect Murphy moment because he was simultaneously admitting to her that he didn't really himself completely understand why he stayed, you know, which is such a Murphy thing, you know, like, yeah, yeah. It sort of feels in character for me for Murphy to do something and then figure out why he did it later, you know? Mm-hmm. But you know, that just that touching moment where he said that he thought that he was trying to impress Samori, but really he just was had a moment of sort of, why does it always have to be a Raven to sacrifice? You know, why mm-hmm. why can't he for once be the one to make the sacrifice? Mm-hmm. Which was like, I think, doubly heartbreaking because when you sort of juxtapose that admission with the sort of tiff that he had with Monty last week, Mm -hmm. where the meanest things that he and Monty could say to each other were coward and useless. You know, so like being useless, being the member of the team who has nothing to give is like the thing Mm -hmm. that really just eats at Murphy, you know, which is not what I would have expected. But I think there's something sort of like heartbreaking in the fact that his confession suggests that he stayed to try to be useful. Mm -hmm. Like this was his way to try to do something to not be useless. And the only way he sees to do that is basically to be like I can be the guy to kill 300 people like I can I can take that Mm -hmm. that sort of guilt yeah I mean there's just like like that is just so kind of heart-wrenching in a kind of like stealth sardonic Murphy way
0: Yeah, well, and that's what, like, Amori says to him, you know, I think that his sort of re-examining his own motivations in light of, like, was this about Amori? Was this to try to show off for Amori? And I think he's right that that wasn't the whole of it, but I do think that we see how it wounds him when Amori immediately is like, ah, John can stay behind. He's the one that nobody needs. Like, John's the one that lifts right out. You know, like, that, I think that feeling that the person in the group that he, you know, is the closest to and has the closest relationship with, that they've become so estranged, that She's like, so here's the person in this group who contributes nothing. And mm-hmm. so I think it's like, it isn't for or about a Mori in the sort of like, well, I'll show her what a badass I am and then she'll want me back kind of way that he maybe initially told himself. But I think that it really was precipitated by like, you know, and we got little bits of this in previous episodes too, that the reason why their relationship ended up sort of floundering was the Mori was full of purpose. You know, that she had so, mm-hmm. like, she she became so integral so quickly. I mean, even, we even saw it in 413 in Prime Fire, like, she just rolls up her sleeves and jumps right in to helping Raven get the rocket ready. Like, she's immediately useful and a deft way of shorthanding what those six years must have been like for her, trying to help Murphy figure out any way that he could contribute to the group and him feeling like that he just didn't. And then, because he feels like he doesn't fit in, then he pulls himself back further and further and fits in less and less. And it's this whole sort of horrible self-perpetuating cycle. And so I do think that there's something, you know, I think the fact that it's Raven in particular and she's this person that he like, you know, she's kind of always been on his conscience. It's always Mm -hmm. been like a thing that he hasn't been able to repair and because it's something permanent and because like every time you look at Raven and you see her leg brace it's like he can't he can't escape that you know like it's always 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 there even though she's adjusted and acclimated and learned to live with it in a totally different new way I think it's just something that it's always kind of been there in the background for him and so I do feel like I think it's significant that it's her that he stays behind for in a way that would be different if it had been you know Monty or even Amore that it's sort of like this is a way of repair a much older sin you know like a a much older wound that he caused and kind of going back to the source so I like that I like that it's them but I also do feel like it contextualizes a little bit that really dark kind of lashing out version of him that we saw you know with Bellamy in the first episode you know the way that he's needling Amori in the previous episode from this one you know that sort of streak of bitterness and meanness in him kind of coming back Mm -hmm. out to like poke at people's softest wounds and I think that it's because he's given up feeling like he contributes to anything and in a way it's like you know it makes sense why he feels that way because he's the only one that kind of came in without a concrete set of skills I mean potentially except for Harper but Harper also like Amori made herself useful immediately
1: well I mean like Murphy is so like sort of deeply thoroughly antisocial as a person right. you know in a kind of a pathological you know and like not mm-hmm. antisocial as in like introverted but antisocial as in like there's something inside of him that's driven to try to unravel yes yes the exactly fabric of whatever he's a part of. And so in sort of extreme situations he does well but you can sort of see him, like he can't Mm -hmm. stop himself from pulling on those
0: threads. Right, right.
1: But you know what's just struck me that actually that makes Raven and Murphy such great foils for each other. Another reason why they're such Mm -hmm. a great pair to have up there together is that if Murphy is the one who has always been the least useful to the group for a whole host of reasons, you know, both because he started out with fewer skills and then later because he like refused to develop any Um, (laughs) and decided to develop his like skills as their own personal phantom of the opera (laughs) but you know On the on the on the other end of the spectrum, Raven is always a person who has seen her primary worth in her usefulness. Like Raven Mm -hmm. is always the person where it's like the thing she thinks that makes her valuable to people is the fact that she's useful. You know, we saw her sort of grappling with that at the end of last season when she was like, "If I can't think, you know, if like if I if I think too hard, I die. And but if I don't think, what's the use of me? Why even Mm -hmm. keep living? What's what's Mm -hmm. the point of me existing if I can't be the genius mechanic who solves everything for?" Everybody. So, like, the struggle that Raven has always had is to understand, you know, to sort of see her worth to people as herself and not as what she can do, either mentally or physically. And so it's like, I think it's really sort of interesting that you have like Murphy the useless and Raven the useful stuck up there together. And I think one really subtle thing that happens in this episode that I actually, like, I hadn't really even struck me to think about it in these ways until we've been talking just now. Murphy can't do anything technically to help Raven. Right. He can't code. He can't, you know, like there's nothing he, he, <laughs> you know, like Murphy loses fistfights to Bellamy and Bellamy loses fistfights <laughs> to like everyone else in the world. So like he can't, if the guys wake up, he can't fight them. Like he's not gonna, right. he's not gonna be able to like save Raven. He can't be like a guard, but he's trying, you know like first he goes down to the pods to check on them, mm-hmm. to make sure that like everybody's still asleep. Which Raven interprets as not trusting her and like maybe it's I'm not saying there isn't an element of that there isn't an element of Mm -hmm. of Murphy basically just like not not trusting Raven but Murphy not trusting systems just sort of like yeah yeah I I was gonna say it's more of the technology
0: yeah Mm -hmm. it's more
1: of a sort of like I get what your computer says but I want to see it with my own eyes kind of situation right but like like, he's trying to help right like he's trying to make sure they're okay and then later he comes back with a soccer ball and again Raven sort of interprets him as like stop messing around why are you goofing off and like on the one hand like I'm sure Murphy is bored but on other hand as he kind of you know in his needling sort of way he points out like she's just working constantly there's not actually anything to do she's just like researching random she's working 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 he's trying to Mm -hmm. get her to relax a little bit you Mm -hmm. know to sort of loosen up to stop being useful for a second and just let herself sort of be and when it finally works when she does play soccer with him you can see her sort of smiling and laughing for the first time in however long you know for the first time since they've been up there so like there's a kind of beautiful way where you can sort of see like Murphy's potential usefulness in the fact that with someone like Raven who can't let go you know mm. that he can be the one to kind of help her let go a little bit
0: well And I think what's interesting about that is the idea that when he chose to stay behind, it's because he thought there was like an immediate evac if anything went wrong. And he doesn't realize until after the ship has already left that there isn't. And all of their faith and trust is now in like, I hope to God Bellamy can make this work. And so the fact that he still is able to be, you know kind of upbeat and good-natured and try to find ways to make life easier for her and pull her out of that place that she gets into, even knowing that, like, the certainty of the escape hatch that he thought he had is now gone and they don't have any idea how long they're going to be up there or what's Mm going to happen, and that he can still you know that he takes up pretty positively like he, he's he's yeah. like that doesn't that doesn't send him into like an anger spiral or make him feel no no like he you know he
1: doesn't freak out he's just like well son of
0: a bitch you know yeah <laughs>
1: that, like, that backfired. fired well anyway yep. yeah
0: <laughs> here we are yeah so I, I like that about him that he's like that like, I, like everything that you said that he's found his way to contribute and it isn't because he has farming skills or technical skills or you know can build things or can create plans and systems and execute them like Bellamy can or whatever. It's that he has a level of shared history and comfort with Raven where even though they haven't always gotten along or even been on the same side, that he can be company for her and he can kind of spot her. Like he can he can tell like, okay, you're spiraling, like let's like close the computer and take a break, you know. And I like that it's a way of being emotionally useful.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the interesting thing about Murphy as a character is that, you know, he's side Simultaneously the most toxic person emotionally to have around. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, also kind of like the best person to have around. You know, mm-hmm. like he can, he can sort of he can get Raven to let loose and play soccer with him. But then also you watch him say when they're in the cryopod chamber together, and he said, I can't remember exactly what he says, but you know, when he kind of like he sort of snaps and says something really nasty to Raven and she walks away, you can see him have that moment of like, Why the fuck did I say that? You know, like why did I let that mm-hmm. fly out of mm-hmm. my mouth? Yep. He's got those sort of two potentials in him at the same time always and like the great thing about Raven is that she just kind of goes with either of them you know like she Mm -hmm. gets sick of him she walks away you know it's a lot less devastating than you know what he had said to Amori last week when he was sort of kneeling at her you could see it got to Amori at a much more core level which makes sense you know because Mm -hmm. she loved him and maybe still does you know I don't know and they have a much more sort of emotionally intimate relationship whereas Raven can kind of just be like whatever fuck you Murphy you know and like walk away and it doesn't cut her to the quick in the same way
0: Well, and I think some of that is the relationship that Raven and Murphy have, you know, it's interesting. It's I think the qualitative difference in terms of, like, how she receives his bullshit versus how Maury does, I think, is that she knows. Like, anytime, like, if they're in a war to make each other feel bad, Raven is the one that has the A-bomb. You know, like, Raven has the the end-the-conversation winning argument in that he can't say anything to her that would make her feel worse than her saying to him, You're the reason I'm disabled. So I think that, (laughs) like... I yeah. think that because because she kind of has that, she can kind of let things roll off a little bit because it's like, oh, if you want to get into it, we can get into it. You're not going to like where this conversation ends. But and I think yeah, that with, yeah. <laughs> and I think with, with, with Amori, I think it's just a different dynamic with Amori because Raven can like, she can hold her own with him. And I also think that even like, he's never not respected her, you know, like they haven't always like yeah. each other. They haven't always gotten along. They haven't always been in the same kind of cohort, but there's never been a time like from the beginning, even when... You You know, Murphy couldn't stand anybody where he didn't innately recognize that Raven is an extraordinary human being without whom they would all be dead. Yeah. So I think that there's a... Not that he... Not that he's, like, intimidated of her because I don't think he's intimidated really of anybody. But I think that, you know, if you could pick a handful of people that Murphy would be the least likely to really genuinely, like, fuck with try and upset them, I think Raven would be the least likely candidate in a lot of ways. You know, I think just mm-hmm. because she yeah. can give back as good as she gets. And also I think just because he knows that nothing bad that has happened to Murphy has been Raven's fault. You know, like, nothing yeah. Yeah. that he resents the world for has been, like, caused by her. I mean, like, if anything, it like, literally the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but when he has, you know, the chips on his shoulder that he has, that he sort of directs at various people, you know, like, like the Bellamy one makes sense, you know, like Bellamy believes that Murphy can be a better person. And so it's really inconvenient to Murphy to have that around when he doesn't want to be a better person, you know?
1: <laughs> right. But Raven doesn't expect anything of it. Yeah. You know, like Raven yeah. has zero expectations of yeah. him. Right down to like, she doesn't even expect him to help her. Yeah. Like, so yeah. he cannot disappoint her because she does not have any expectations mm-hmm. whatsoever. Which is you yeah. know, like if your person like Murphy is kind of relaxing, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because because she
0: isn't putting any pressure on him to become somebody different, or even necessarily like holding particular past sins against him. She's just kind of like, I'm just doing my own thing. I don't expect you to help. So if you do help, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. But, but like, mostly
1: stay out of my way. <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah. And I and I also do think one thing that is really a significant kind of shift moment in the journey that that we see Raven go on just from the beginning of this episode to the end of this episode that I think really moves some some emotional pieces around for her is that we get to watch the moment where she ceases having to hold on to her guilt that Clark didn't make it. Yes! Like her six years of Clark died to get us to space and I have to get you down and if I don't get you down then Clark died for nothing and we're all gonna mm-hmm. die on the ring. Like mm-hmm. I Like part of... Because after she's Bellamy, so she's dramatically one- committed to usefulness is because Clark died on her watch and she feels a exactly. responsibility. And so you can imagine her being like, she's tired and she wants to sleep. But a couple of hours of sleep could be the difference between fixing the radio and not fixing the radio. Like, like things like that, where it's like the pressure she puts on herself to like be perfect, be the best, figure out this superhuman thing all the time, because otherwise, this incredibly earth-shattering loss that she has hasn't necessarily maybe grieved in a like like I I felt like watching her on that on that radio I was like I bet that's the first time Raven's let herself cry uh yeah like, like I think her grief came out in just spending 20 hours a day sitting at that computer console desperately trying yeah. to figure out how to fix what she couldn't fix and so I think having that burden lifted and knowing like not just that you didn't kill Clark Raven like you didn't you don't have to mm-hmm. hold on to that like she took a bullet for you but she is okay, so you don't have to carry that around anymore. So I think, yeah, I think what I, what I liked about us getting to see, you know, the Raven that she is with Zeke at the end, I think we're seeing a Raven who has gone from being fanatically driven by these sort of demons chasing her to being like old school Raven who's got her mojo back. And I think that that, mm-hmm. that release of guilt and pain and sadness of just sort of knowing, okay, like Clark's alive, Clark and Bellamy are on the ground, they're. Figuring this out i can help from here but i don't have to carry around the pressure that like i'm like she's not atoning for anything anymore you know and so i think that that
1: or something like you know she doesn't have the pressure of like you know i think when she made the decision last episode she was thinking clark died to get us up here so i can die to get you back you know Mm -hmm. and now i think like with clark alive it's sort of like Wait, okay, so Clark didn't die to get us up here, so we don't have to die to get you back. You know, there's a kind mm-hmm. of a, a shift mm-hmm. of a sense of, like, martyrdom is a necessary part of this process to, like, you know, rising from the dead is just, like, something yeah. that was something that's happening in our lives now, so yeah. here we go, you and, know, there's a kind of, like,
0: a sense of hope, you know, like, which fits with this, yeah. uh, <laughs> with the title of this episode. I think so, too. I, I think that there's a, you know, I think it, there's a reminder that as contentious as their relationship has been sometimes, Clark... Clark and Raven have also never not had faith in each other. You know, like, I think they've been angry yeah. at each other. But even at their absolute, like, worst, lowest moments, like around the Finn stuff, they both were like, my respect for the position that you hold in this group and the skills that you have that I don't have hasn't changed even though, like, Raven was so furious and Clark was so sad and ashamed that they could, like, hardly be in the same room together. But they still, mm-hmm. like, got shit done.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, They still
0: did the things that had to get done. And so I think that there's gotta be so much comfort For Raven, like not just like Clark's alive in that. Oh thank God Clark's not dead, but like Clark's alive as like Clark's there. Clark, you yeah. know, like there's a problem that needs to be solved, and we have Clark on it now. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's exactly. like, like this sort of twofold nature of what it does to her to have the pain of Clark's loss erased and removed, and getting to thank her, which she never got to do before for sacrificing. Which is so to save beautiful. Life, like I was which just, was just like, so like so moving. I was like, so happy that we actually do you think got that, that. Wished she could say that and couldn't, because Clark was dead and she was like I'm never gonna get a chance to tell her thank you for what you did to like get us all to safety so like emotionally that's a huge piece of it too but strategically and in terms of like freeing Raven up to focus on just her slice of the problem solving knowing that Clark's brain is back in the game has got to be such a relief to her
1: yeah I think you're right that's a that's a part of that too you know sort of sense of okay like we got our long-range strategic thinker back like thank god you know but then also I mean I I do also think that there's just kind of a level at which just the fact of Clark being alive means so much yeah yeah there's a sort of like impact beyond merely like you said lifting the guilt and beyond oh yay our friend is back and beyond we have this person who's capable of doing things that none of us can do there's something like I, one thing I really love about this episode that we got to linger with especially in the thank yous that we got like Raven saying thank you to Clark and Bellamy saying thank you to Clark was like we got to linger for a second with a sense and kind of feel with the other characters how much Clark means to to these characters just like the fact that she's alive means mm-hmm. that she's there in the world again means so much and then also to Kane, you know and like when he comes out of the bunker and sees her and to her mother she is almost like another thing to fight for you know like okay you're here alright that means that we've got something more to kind of like keep going for and I, I, and I it's hard to articulate but I just sort of there's like an energy I think just from a sense of mm-hmm. like I, I guess additional hope that comes from the presence of her again in their lives which I don't know I just like I find that so beautiful you know just like something about recognizing how important a single human being can be in a bunch of lives even in a not directly pragmatic way is just like it's really nice yeah. to yeah kind of
0: one really lovely runner through the whole episode that I I thought was so beautiful among the many amazing reunions which we'll talk about you know when we when we get more into like the um the bunker stuff but like the number of different Moments of somebody, of the the emotions that we witness as somebody sees Clark again, was like amazing. Like there was the, yeah. you know like like getting getting the the one on one reunion moment between her and Bellamy, which I'm sure, which we'll come mm-hmm. back to because I'm sure you'll have screams about it. But like, and then obviously, <laughs> I think, and then her and her mom. Um, but even like, you know, her her reunion with Octavia, even though it is more tense and a little bit more reserved like there's huge things going on there in that moment um one of my biggest most delightful surprises of the whole episode was that they really they let us have a moment between clark and kane which i would never have expected like like the like (laughs) he has the shittiest episode like everything in the whole entire world that (laughs) happens to him is so bad And yet he comes out of the bunker and he's just like lights up like he's – I'm going to see him smile and and it's like – and it's like you said, like it's that simple. It's just like Clark's alive and it's not like, okay, thank God you're here. Let's put you right to work. And it's not that he in any way carried any sense of responsibility or guilt for what happened to her. Like it's not that. It's just like – I'm so happy that you're here and I'm so happy to see you, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and so many of those reunions had like other things kind of layered on top of them, you know, Bellamy and Abby in particular, but just the sort of the sheer fact of like us getting to watch over and over again, like how, how important Clark is to these people, even Indra who like, you know, expresses it differently, but it's like Indra immediately is like pulls Clark in to the sort of the like of the what's happening, you know, like like even interest like, thank God Clark's here, you know, um and and so I love like i I think it's just a really i I agree with you, I think that there's a lot of different layers and components in everyone's different relationships with Clark and in their. In their various, very different understandings of what happened to Clark, where like, you know, Raven thought she was dead the whole time. Abby knew she was alive the whole time, but couldn't get to her. Mm-hmm. Um, Bellamy thought that she was dead the whole time and, and felt a real sense of, of ambivalence about whether he had done the right thing in leaving her behind, even though he kind of knew that he didn't have any other choice, but like felt, the sting of that. Um, So all these mm-hmm. different sort of components of, of those relationships, you know, sort of add additional layers to the sort of subtext of those reunions. But just getting to see that moment of everybody having her back in their lives again, and her importance to them as a person was like, so emotional and so beautiful. And you and you know, like, okay, so that's like, you get your nice hug and then immediately things are going to go horribly wrong or you're going to be separated again <laughs> or, or doom will somehow strike. But just but in that – but like I was yelling about this a little bit on Twitter last night. Well, I was yelling about everything because the episode was so good and I couldn't stop yelling. But one thing that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of like what specifically is making this season like already – so much stronger four episodes in, I think, than certainly than the last two. Um, maybe then than the whole show altogether. And I think it's because it's like, it's like they've remembered how the hook for most people who watch the show is that we care about these people and their relationships. And the plot mm-hmm. is layered on top of that. And mm-hmm. when it starts to be plot driving character, where you you know, where you make You know, somebody like Bellamy or Abby do something that feels wildly out of character because you got to move some chess pieces around or you have a big high stakes kind of action set piece and it's all about the like the action of it and not so much the like emotional why. Then you, then it's harder like then like we disconnect a little bit. Like it's harder. It's harder to be Mm -hmm. as sort of invested. And I think what this season is nailing like almost, I would say, across the board in every storyline with every character is that like, I mean like the stakes are high and the action is Mm -hmm. huge and it is intense as hell. Like it's all of the, it's as, it's as breathless and fast paced and and action driven as you could want. But in the midst of that, they've seeded in these quiet moments and these emotional moments and these moments of connection and these reminders, you know, like the connection between Miller and Bellamy you know, yeah, the, just
1: like, the fact like that. We got to pause. Like, I mean, yeah. like, I think that's, you know, maybe like in this episode, the sort of the big, the biggest indicator, biggest difference, I think, between like last season and this season is last season, I feel like they would not, you know, the show would not have remembered that Bellamy and Miller would be happy to see each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and in this, and this season, we got like, you know, and it was like five seconds or whatever, maybe 10 seconds. We got a little mm-hmm. moment of, you know, like, Hug, smile at each other like i'm glad you're alive and it served a plot purpose you know because mm-hmm. because bellamy saw miller's gun and was like right uh okay and then he got to turn down mm-hmm. you know like so like it served a purpose because it kind of like it sort of clued bellamy into the fact that octavia is already flouting the terms of the deal that he made you know so it kind mm-hmm. of like it like it serves as an opening for, you know, for Bellamy being like, all right, Octavia, we got to talk, you know, and kind of like moving, moving the sort of Blake siblings from that moment of joy of seeing each other towards like, they are actually very much on different sides. But we still got that sort of nice moment of like, hey, buddy, I haven't seen you in six years. I'm super glad that you're still alive,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and I think that that, I think it just really goes to show that that it is absolutely possible to have both of those things. And it doesn't mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't take anything away from how, how action packed or high stakes or exciting the exciting parts are. It's just like, you know, giving us those little moments where things breathe. Like it's, it's, it's because we know that Miller is an important person to Bellamy that we feel how disturbing it is to Bellamy to see Miller like a disciple of Octavia. You know, like, yeah, and, exactly. and that's something that's going to cut that will, that will bear fruit later in the plot. I think we're going to end up seeing Miller in a position where he's forced to switch sides. Like it's laying groundwork, like it's doing plot work. But like you said, it's also letting us kind of rest and breathe in that for a second. You know, I think that Murphy, <laughs> Murphy's little smile when they hear Clark's voice, yeah. like, you know, like, like that reminder that, you know, in his little quip about, the cockroach, like like just letting us linger in the fact that no matter what has gone down between them, you know, what happened in the lab with almost sacrificing Amori, like as bad as things got, you know, letting us sit there for a moment with Murphy's just pure, uncomplicated delight that the person that he thought was dead wasn't dead. You know, I, I think that those moments are so important because it's the reminder of like who these people are to each other. That's where those high stakes come from. You know, like that fighting pit Mm -hmm. scene isn't breathless and terrifying just because like axes are neat. You know, it's, it's because we've been watching this progressive devolution of Kane's relationship with Octavia and Octavia's increasing resistance to being contradicted in any way as she assumes this like godlike emperor role that we're watching these sort of two trains colliding to a point where she's ready to like chop, you know, her once surrogate dad figures head off herself. Like it's, it's because we care about Octavia and we care about Cain and we care about the whole journey of their relationship. And because the previous episode they were in together took the time to show us steps along that way. So mm-hmm. like just, yeah. To lay groundwork of Octavia becoming this Octavia so I, I, I think that, I think that it's just threading that needle so deftly where I, I, like I just, every episode I watch, I'm just like, I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling so many things, but like the big, <laughs> you know, the big things land the, the way you want them to land because we get in between those, those moments of like really lingering on like, Indra's face at key moments where you realize how conflicted her loyalties are because she cares about every one of these people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and the, and the history between, you know, between Miller and Bellamy, between Clark and Murphy, between Clark and Raven, you know, all that stuff. It's just so, it's, I think it's found its way back to being really relationship centered again. And I, and I also like, you know, Octavia and her kind of, what her journey is going to be aside, I do think that like introducing this exterior force in the form of Eligius that shakes things up again, I think is a great way to re-center on the relationships among the characters that we've had, you know, that we've been watching the whole entire time. Like you sort of, you know, you throw a bomb in and everyone kind of like, you know, you watch how everyone sort of reacts to it. And so I think that it's a great Mm -hmm. force for kind of reshuffling the deck among all these relationships to kind of introduce this outside force that that already has done things that are both positive and negative. You know, like the bunker would only, the bunker would not have been open without Eligius. So that's like a unequivocal good. But the trade-off of that is now they have this sort of devil's bargain that gets broken immediately and they've made a really powerful enemy who now has hostages. So it's very complicated. But I just, I like that, um... I like what that's doing to the relationships that exist already and just these little ways that we get to kind of sit in those moments with them and feel how, feel what they're feeling before we then move on to the next, like, big explodey thing. I'm just so – anyway, I'm just really – I'm sometimes rambling, but I'm just really – I'm really, really loving that balance. And I think that this episode – did that so well that it was almost hard to believe that it was only like 45 minutes, you know, like, so. No, uh,
1: yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree.
0: Yeah. Oh, so yeah. So good. It's so good.
1: So oh, good. Um, um, all right. Before we leave space, um, first of all, I don't have a lot of like deep stuff to say about Zeke and Raven. Other than that, I continue to like a thousand percent. Oh, well first of all, his name is apparently not Zeke. <laughs> it is miles.
0: I. I mean, uh, I. J- Jason can say that all he wants to, but I. I don't. I just don't think that's gonna stick. I think partly everyone is like, no, I'm just refusing, just because I. Don't, I don't want to give in. But also, like, we all got really attached to Zeke. Zeke is who he is to us. Like, you can. You can tell us we're only allowed to call him Shaw, but like. The horses left the stable like we we've, we've got ship names already. We're not changing them. So, yeah. I, the whole thing I mean, has like, been really hilarious.
1: Maven Maven is a is not a bad ship name, honestly. But that being said, Miles. I mean, first of all, there was already a Miles in season 1.
0: Thank uh, you. Yes, the little yes. boy who was like starstruck with Clark when they went hunting. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And was like cock-blocking Finn, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, thank you, Miles.
0: But then he died right, right. <laughs> <laughs> He lived to uh, cock-block Finn Collins. <laughs> <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> I mean, and really, once you've done that, is
1: there anything left to live for? I mean, like, you've already peaked.
0: Um, uh,
1: perhaps, perhaps this, Miles, is, is a little... Uh, a uh, nod to that one, although I suspect that perhaps they just forgot about the first season. Of Miles. Um, so, so just as a, as a sort of like programming note to our listeners, we will continue to refer to him as Zeke. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> although we are aware that his name is Miles, I guarantee I will call him Zeke every single time because I'm not yeah. going to remember that it's Miles, and I'm not gonna, and like I'm not gonna remember to call him Shaw. Um, yeah. Also, like his middle name is Zeke because I think. Well, I mean, maybe not officially, but there was that one, Jason, there was that one tweet of Jason's
0: where he, with the hashtag, Miles Ezekiel Shaw. Right. So. I, I think that is official. I think Jason said that at some point we'll see that on a, like, on a screen thing. I see. Like, we'll see okay. that it actually is, like, I, I guess, I guess the middle name thing is canon. All know. right.
1: So, so there you go. So it's his middle name. So we're just going to call him by a shortened version of his middle name. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Sorry, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> She's sorry. I'm not.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> so Zeke and Raven. I Yeah, I don't have a lot of deep stuff to say other than it was just like such a sheer delight to watch them, to watch both of them on either end of it. Just have these moments of sort of like, wait, what the fuck? Who is this yeah, person? yeah. Like, How are the, I should be like sailing through this with no problem. And yet Mm -hmm. somehow this person has come along to be like a fly in my ointment. Yeah. Um,
0: (laughs) You know who it reminded me of? Um, do you, uh, did you, you finished leverage, right? You got all the way through it? No, I didn't. Okay. But have you, have you seen the one with Will Wheaton? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it reminded, I was like, this is Hardison in chaos. Like, like I have your van, and now I have your van, and I have the lasers. <laughs> like, just like, you know, like, and making the other person's screen say, like, mean, like, mocking, sarcastic things, and, like, hijacking control of each other's, like, the lights in each other's vans, like, just for fun. I was like, oh, my God. Like, it, it reminded me of that same kind of, like... If the stakes weren't so insane, this could totally be hilarious. But And, and it was oh, actually, yeah. like, it was enormously it was, yeah. entertaining. Um, it was very entertaining. And I, and
1: I feel like, you know, there's we talked last week about how Zeke is sort of, like, a better version of Finn in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, there's a lot of sort of aspects of Wick in him, too, which, you know. Oh, yeah, 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 like, yeah. Like, sort of, like, the perfect – he's, like, the perfect – Amalgamation of the good parts of both of Raven's
0: so far canon love interests, mm-hmm. um, with none yeah. of the
1: downsides.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, cause he's like, cause the thing, you know, one, like one of the, one of the real shortcomings, I think of, of Finn in terms of like, I mean, like apart from all the things about him that we don't like, which are, we've already gone everything. into in detail, <laughs> apart from everything, you know, like one, one piece of it that makes him, I think, really unsuitable to Raven as like, a long-term partner if they were to, like, become adults together is that, like, Finn did not have, like, Finn wasn't at a level where he could really, like, understand and appreciate just how well her brain worked. And I think one of the things that I liked about Wick was that Wick was, like, Wick was smart enough, and smart enough in this particular area, to see exactly how extraordinary she was. I think I think sort of hardwired into the Finn and Raven relationship was, like, Finn as Raven's kind of caretaker. You know, like, Finn making sure Mm -hmm. Raven had food, Finn being her only family. And so there was sort of a sense of, like, Raven dependent on him in a way where, like, I think she was never going to really – with Finn as her partner, she was never going to really be able to, like, stretch her wings all the way. And so I think – Yeah. I think if you sort of look at, like – you know, as, as full of problems as, as many of the kind of romantic and sexual partnerships the show's given Raven, you know, like they've not all been free of things to unpack and debate about. But one, I think, if you think, if you look at it kind of as a succession of, mm-hmm. of Raven learning things progressively from relationships, you know, I think, um, I think that she needed the fling with Bellamy served to kind of, Kick her out of the place she was in with Finn. And I think it's, I think it served mm-hmm. that purpose, um, and kind of helped her begin to close that door. Um, and I think that she needed to close the door on Finn and that version of herself that she was with Finn, who was really dependent on him, him taking care of her, him taking the bullet for her, going to lock up for her, you know, feeling this of like beholden to him for just mm-hmm. her, her freedom and existence, you know, survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and, And so I think that, you know, once she sort of breaks up with him because of the Clark thing, and then she gets to kind of like put that behind him by moving on with somebody else. Um, then I think the thing with Wick is like that, you know, the relationship that she has with Wick is, is built on both being treated like an equal and being recognized for the fact that she has this mind that can do things that nobody else can do. Like, it isn't that Wick doesn't think that she's hot, because obviously she is hot and he thinks that she's hot, but that the, their spark <laughs> between them is a, is like professional bickering, which is, which was really satisfying yeah. to watch. You know, like it was, um, it's such a bummer that Steve Talley was a horrible person, you know, because I, th- I think there was, Because there was so much in their dynamic that I think worked really well and gave us this new side of her with a peer to kind of bounce off of. And so I think, you know, and then having her in a position for a couple of seasons following that where her storyline really got to be about herself and like unpacking her own damage and baggage and pain and self-doubt and this feeling that if she couldn't be... perfect, then she wasn't worth anything, and how she dealt with being a person who has chronic pain and a disability now, and how that kind of rewrote her sense of self. So all of those sort of, I think that facet of the journey, like, it 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 feels like you could actually draw a really nice progression through kind of all of those data points on this journey to, you know, opening her up to being in exactly the right position for a relationship with somebody, you know, somebody like Shaw, who both... Before he even like before he even realizes that she is like the most beautiful human being to ever walk the face of any planet. <laughs> he hasn't
1: even seen her yet.
0: Yeah. And he's like, he, I mean Yeah, like, he only knows that she's like even a girl just because, like, you know, from like from Bellamy, from like overhearing things. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. doesn't know yeah, yeah. anything about who she is, except that She's the first person that he has met who's smarter than him in like a hundred uh-huh. years. And he's uh-huh. the kind of guy who's like secure enough in his own brain to find that more intriguing than he finds it threatening, which I think Finn mm-hmm. would have, you know? Mm-hmm. Um And yeah. So, oh, definitely. Yeah. And so he's already like, he's already sort of indicated himself to be a person who is, um and I, I think I'm, I don't. I don't quite know how to articulate this, but it's like that sense that we all had already of him being a person who was not sort of black and white in the way that he chose sides, the way somebody like McCreary is like the fact that he's sort of like his, his presence as a member of Dioza's band is itself kind of a complicated thing. And, mm-hmm. um, and so what I like about the fact that he has this instant zing of a connection with Raven even though in that moment, Raven is the enemy, like Raven is, is this force that's trying to thwart him. But the respect that he instantly has for like, like God, like she's good and she's good enough that mm-hmm. she can be good at this and also fuck with me with this damn bird <laughs> picture. You know, I think, I think the fact that he's so kind of instantly captivated by that is another reminder that like his, his ideology is, is not like his allegiance is not with. With Diosa for any kind of ideological reasons, it's purely situational, and he is ripe for switching sides with the right motivation. And you know, and he responds to people who have like shared interests with him in a way where, like, like it just was a reminder of like how open he is to there being more than just like two black and white sides to everything—good mm-hmm. guys versus mm-hmm. bad guys. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I like, I like that. I like that side of him, and it was just really fun to see, like. Sass pants, fuck with you, Raven. Come roaring back. yes I was like, oh, what a meat cute. So,
1: do you think that when the launch code doesn't work at the end, I think that was Zeke, not Raven. Oh, do you? I mean, I was kind of thinking like, it might be Raven. We'll see if they come mm-hmm. back to it. But it just occurred. I was like, I had this moment of like, it didn't. Yeah, like I, I sort of have like a Ooh. a like minor hunch that perhaps that was Zeke deciding – because he was, like, you know, he didn't want to do it. He was, like, very, very opposed to it for, you know, a couple of reasons, probably because he didn't want to kill a bunch of people, but then also because, like, he was pointing out – and I was waiting for someone to point this out. Like, they are in a hell of a genetic bottleneck. like Oh, my God, yeah. Left. Like, you kill most of those people. You've got, like, a couple hundred left. Like, what the fuck do you actually think you're doing? Right, um, right. So, so, I mean, so I was sort of, like – Raven is a handy scapegoat for him to be like, "Oh, wow, gee, this launch code isn't working. Must be that like genius girl, but it seemed
0: kind of fishy to me
1: so i, I, kind of I actually, him
0: I like that idea i I hadn't thought of it like that. I sort of assumed that it was Raven, but I do think that um one point in favor of that is is that you know, when it's a docking by doors, for example, like when when they try to outsmart Raven yeah. that way, we see Raven. React. We see her see it coming and be like, "Oh shit!" and have to scramble to think of a plan. And with the, mm-hmm. um, you know, firing of the missiles, he just pushes a button and it doesn't work. So we.
1: And the other thing is, is that we know that when he does that, Raven and Murphy, like Raven, isn't in the, you know, in the bridge. So unless right. for some reason she hacked into the, she preemptively ship before, did,
0: yeah. Um, which is which, not out of
1: the realm of possibility, but does seem like yeah. I don't know. There's just like enough there that I'm sort of like I'm thinking like it's Zeke being the kind of you know a guy who thinks for himself, who makes it you know who, who's who's taking advantage of the fact that he is at a technological advantage. Like these people won't know right, any different, right? They're exactly, yeah. They they him. won't like
0: Gioza can't check his work.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just me and I'm so, so I'm curious to see if that comes back next episode when they're. You know, yeah. When, we, when he meets Raven and Murphy, when I mm-hmm. imagine those, so like the stuff is going to kind of start to come to a head.
0: Yeah. So I'm, so what I'm, what I'm, you've sold me. And part of the reason is, so, so the, it, so immediately preceding the moment where he pushes the button and it's like, beep, boop beep, beep. Oh no, no guns. What it, it's, the <laughs> it's the standoff between him and McCreary directly. And it's uh-huh. basically like McCreary is literally like, I will fucking kill you. And Shaw's like, you can't fly this thing without me. And McCreary is like, I don't really care about that so much. I still would like to kill you. So I think, I think, <laughs> sh- you know, it's, it's like, I could see it potentially being, he tries reasoning them out of it. Dio's is not willing to hear reason right now. He tries kind of a little bit of blackmail and basically being like, uh-huh. you know, you you need me more than I need you. And McCreary's like, mm-hmm. test that bet. And he's like, okay, fine. And so the third thing that he can do is basically be like, okay, you win. I'm going to do the thing that you asked me to do. And then, yeah, and then just like deliberately press the wrong button and not tell them what he did. Mm-hmm. Um So, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it um, – yeah. I like – I hope now that you planted that idea in my brain. I hope that's what it is because I like the idea of him being like sneaky – forced for good undermining like it could be it could be really fascinating if he is already a little bit becoming kind of not a mole exactly but like a little bit of an active rebel behind the scenes already this early even before you know he's gonna meet raven and murphy and he's gonna realize that they're exactly as like trustworthy and non-terrifying as Clark and Bellamy and everyone else that he's met so far, where he's like, these are not Mm -hmm. evil Mm -hmm. people who deserve to be destroyed. So I I think that's, you know, I think that's going to, that's going to definitely shift things. But I think that us getting to see that like already, you know, there are places where like both as we've seen in multiple episodes, that he's totally willing to go toe to toe with Diosa and McCreary. But this is a, a moment where potentially we're seeing, Is he also willing to outright sabotage if they don't listen to him? And yeah, and I like, I like that. If that becomes part of his story, you know, like that, for example, puts that shot of him with the gun, you know, in a whole new light. Like, does he end up openly rebelling much earlier in the story that we, than we maybe thought? Um, is he, or is he, you know, loyal to McCreary and Yosa on the surface and, secretly kind of working, you know, like I could see him sort of quietly teaming up with Raven in some kind of a way where like they're feeding each other information. Like it just, it it makes me feel like, I think I was sort of picturing him as somebody where his arc over the course of the whole season might be coming to the realization that he's on the wrong side and wants to try mm-hmm. to, you know, broker some kind of a, something more peaceable. But it would actually be kind of badass and a really cool way to raise the stakes for his character if he's already there and we get to see him being sort of like a double agent.
1: Yeah, which actually makes me really excited for him to meet Echo potentially.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, like I sort of thinking about like what if, you know, like Echo is a kind of like spy master, you know, that that mm-hmm. there's a sort of space crew covert thing happening, which would also really really complicate things you know for bellamy if he if he's sort of like at odds with octavia but then also has like a lot of strategic information you know like it kind of it kind of makes things a lot more complicated on a bunch of levels potentially both interpersonally mm-hmm. and in terms of like stakes of this uh, you know of this like high stakes game of chess that they're all mm-hmm. playing where like information about who knows what what equipment they have what plans they have is at such a premium um, you know, that's something that, that could come into play in a fascinating and big ways later in terms of all those characters, Clark and Bellamy and, and Maddie and space crew who are kind of like caught between one crew and Allegius.
0: Yeah. Well, and I just like we just kind of like are like
1: we would just like a small section of the green place to yeah. live in and not get blown up, please. <laughs> yeah,
0: you guys can fight out the rest of it. We will take right. like you know one hundred square feet, and we will all bunk in the same place, and you guys yeah. go fight over there. Well, and something else uh, that I a think um,
1: tears. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and so- something else that I think is potentially um, could be an interesting position that Raven ends up in, you know, when, cause we, we know that they, well, the, the, the promo pictures for 505 came out today and Murphy at least is on the ground. So they must like, yes, they must go like up and then down in the next episode. So, but one thing that I think could be a really interesting plot thread that could get sort of picked back up again is we know from, um, 502 when jaha died he was their only engineer mm. and and so like so one crew is like one crew doesn't have anybody in the in that same level of like a technological capacity you know and mm-hmm. um and eligius has zeke but they you know so like raven's abilities in Raven's brain could end up being an asset that's really in demand by both sides. Like, Eligius already has somebody, but they have, like, all the technology. Yeah. Like, they have way more. Which makes me
1: kind of think there's that, that Raven, they might hang on to Raven for that reason mm-hmm. and they might dump Murphy thinking that he's useless. Which would be right. perfect as in terms of Murphy's arc where, like, Murphy's sort of, like, supposed usefulness or uselessness winds up being, like, actually
0: strategically really useful over and over again. Like, if they yeah. kind of... Well, and... He- And he, he ends up like, so just, just looking at from the pictures that came out a few hours ago, he appears to be, um, so I, we didn't see Abby, but Murphy and Kane are in the same place now, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and potentially at like... You know, prisoners at different levels, like Kane is drinking whiskey with Dioza in the pretty gazebo and oh, Murphy has a shot collar. So, like, <laughs> their status <laughs> is slightly different, but they're both essentially captives of Eligius yeah, yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah. So, uh, so that makes me wonder if, if potentially there, you know, if, if Murphy is there, if Raven is there too, is there, what are the ways in which, like, those, f- those four people, Kane, Abby, Raven, Murphy, um, could end up sort of working within the system using, you know, like, Abby leveraging the fact that she's incredibly highly in demand as a doctor, Raven leveraging Mm -hmm. the fact that, like, she's the only person there who's as smart as as Zeke is, and Murphy leveraging the fact that no one pays attention to him at all, (laughs) like, to sort of... (laughs) You know, like, like, is there, I think that, that, that foursome would just be fascinating. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but so, so whatever, so whatever kind of goes down in terms of how they, you know, how they get taken down to earth is going to happen in, in the next episode. So I think we're going to see, you know, is, is Raven somebody that they feel is too dangerous to allow her to live to allow like allow her to get free, or is Raven somebody who they think is valuable enough that they will figure out how she can be manipulated? You know, like Dioza's is so mm-hmm. good at. We mm-hmm. talked about before, like Dioza's is so good at identifying everyone's pressure point, and it's possible that Raven's pressure point in this moment is Murphy because Murphy is the person that she sort of, you know, everyone else is kind of out from under Dio's thumb in a different way. And Murphy is the one that yeah. she was gonna is going to feel protective of. You know, we know that there's that clip that was in the trailer of her begging McCreary not to hurt him when they've got the shock collars on. You know, so mm-hmm. I wonder if if Murphy becomes what they use to get Raven to do whatever they need Raven to do.
1: Okay, so while we're on the speculation train, let's talk about yes. some of the little... <sighs> Oh my god. Clues that were dropped in this episode.
0: (laughs) We were texting last night, like, how the fuck are we even gonna cover this entire episode in less than, like, 9 million hours? Because the big storylines, we have a million things to say about, but, like, there was little teeny tiny things dropped in there where it's like, we could talk for, like, an hour about what the fuck happened to Elygius 3.
1: (laughs) Well, we know that they had night blood, and they were going, because they were going someplace with two sons.
0: Yeah. So we know that. And the file is locked, which could be, uh-huh. I think, either for two reasons. So this my, t- my two theories are, A, is this whole Hippolytium mining thing for, for some or all of these various mining missions? Was that a front for something else? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and maybe it only was for religious 3, maybe it was for all of them, and we'll find it out on this ship too, but was the actual mission that they were sent on, go mine this super valuable, you know, mineral element that's in this asteroid, was that, was either the reason for why they needed the Hithlodium or the actual reason that they sent these people to space in this way? A cover for something else, like we talked last time about, is it part of a government plan to develop super soldiers and the Mm nightblood serums and things that they inject them with also have other impacts? Like, that's one facet of it. Like, was the actual purported mission a cover for a different mission? And part of why Elytius Three is redacted is that that information is more tied to that one of the missions. But the other one is... Mm -hmm. Is that file redacted because something happened to Elegious 3 that would be dangerous if it got out? You know, I mean, anything from like crazy things to like aliens. <laughs> <laughs> or, or something happened that was so over the top terrifying in terms of the results of their experimental Nightblood or what happened on the, or something. But basically they were like, we're locking up this mission file and no one can ever find out what happened to that ship. Mm hmm. My theory, of course, is that the ship is still out there and Shane and Cook is going to ride it back onto Earth in the yes. finale. I think
1: we all feel pretty confident that whatever, that, yeah. that Legius Three is going to be showing up at the end as a part of that final twist. Exactly, yeah. And it's going to turn out that actually Legius Three was a cruise ship that was like a long-term Degrassi High RPF. <laughs> like live action role-playing <laughs> game thing that will show back up again. A hundred
0: years later. Anyway. <laughs> Headcanon accepted. <laughs> but yeah, so so the question of what was different about Elogius Three from the other ones, and the two things that we know, that that's the one where there was the actual night, night blood that functions like we understand night blood to function, mm-hmm. and that it somehow disappeared, went missing, you know, it sort of was never spoken of again. Clearly, I think, at least with Raven, and maybe potentially with some of the other characters too, I think the seed being planted this early means, you know, much like with Cadigan in Second Dawn, like... This is going to be a thing that, you know, someone is going to keep sleuthing on this. Yeah. I like the idea of potentially this being a way to loop back into Cadigan Becca stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't really know, or as I, I don't know if it was explicitly stated, how far apart these various missions were, but certainly because Allegius three happened recently enough before Allegius four that Zeke could be like, Oh yeah, her blood is black. I remember that, you know, mm-hmm. like he knew what that was. Yeah. So I think that that really puts it pretty definitively all in the cadigan timeline you mm-hmm. know in, in a way where that could loop in I think in some really interesting ways other than the fact that I'm convinced like I think we're all convinced that like that's the big finale twist you know then the question is did Elegeus 3 find and settle on a planet with two suns like is there like a human settlement there and then like he picks up the human race in his ship and they all go live on like is that you know like is that the setup or is it a matter of you know some people stay on Earth and some people go back to space and then we sort of have two worlds again Do they come back to Earth because the two sun planet they were on is not habitable? And now there's 50,000 people trying to fit into that tiny little valley. Like, I don't know. Like, there's so many different, you know, ways that they could come up. But right now what I'm interested in is I feel like the possibility of interesting different ways in which Eligius Mining itself is sort of a fundamentally shady company, potentially tied into some (laughs) government conspiracies, potentially tied into even like Ali, Becca, end of the world world stuff. I think could be really interesting. Like just inherently I'm like this company is shady as hell. Oh, you know what? Okay, but here's
1: another theory about Aegis 3. So, Cadigan and his cult, right? Right. So we know that their slogan is from the ashes we will rise and that they're called Second Dawn. Mm-hmm. So what if the bunker was the first stage of their plan? And the second stage of their plan was to relocate to this other planet place mm-hmm, 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 with mm-hmm. two suns you know first dawn second su- second dawn yeah with yeah, two yeah. Suns. and then from the ashes we will rise like rising up out of the atmosphere so like that's another way that Elegius 3 might actually like maybe it's <sighs> redacted because it was never a mining yeah yeah you know, thing at all. It was always a part of his, like, doomsday cult plans.
0: Yeah, and he, like, hid it. He did the thing that you do when you're trying to hide something where you sort of just, like, slip it in in the middle. Like, it wasn't the first religious yeah. mission. It wasn't the last religious mission. It was just that one in the middle that went haywire, and it was always yeah. gonna, oh my god. And they could sort of act like, oh, well, that was a failure. And then the Hithlodium, Hitler,
1: Hitler, 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 whatever they call it. I mean, they said that it was, like, a very, very potent energy source, right? So, like, they would still right. actually need the miners. They'd still need to Mine. Right, right. right. Because they would need an energy source, you know? So, like, it's possible that they needed mining labor, but they didn't really need, like, miners to go out into space and then come back to Earth. That was never necessarily right. Like the they just plant. needed the stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like they they went to the asteroid, they mined the stuff, and then they went on to to wherever they were. And then I wonder if, or you know, Order
1: Eleven could be something like. So what did the guy say? Like they found out about Order Eleven? Is that is yeah? Like, like the captain said, they found out about Order Eleven. Yeah. Okay. So what if Order Eleven? So what if they told the miners? You know, you're going to go out in the mine and then come back. Right. What if Order Eleven was the order to not go back to earth but to proceed to the next place and the reason that the mutiny happened is because they were like, oh hell no, we're not because oh. the miners were like, we want to go back to Earth. Yeah. And that was yeah. the, that was the the hijack was like we don't they did not want to go back to like wherever they were going to go and keeping slave labor forever. They wanted to
0: go back to Earth. And that's the like backstory of this. I love that because what I like about that, that's a motivation for why Dioza did what she did that makes complete sense, where it would be impossible in some ways, like not to be on her side to like yeah, rebel yeah. and try to like take the ship back if the alternative is, oh, by the way, we didn't tell you that you joined a cult, but you joined a cult. <laughs> yeah. We didn't tell you that you're actually like permanent slave labor for a cult, but you are. So
1: anyway, you're never going right. home. Have fun mining, hyphalodium, on an asteroid for the rest of your short lives. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know the and the idea being that like the people whoever the second dawn people are on the other planets like they could rationalize this to themselves because it's like, oh, well, they're convicts, you know, like they're violent, Mm -hmm. horrible people. It doesn't matter what happens to them. Mm -hmm. But Dioza always being like kind of a character who sees injustice and will do literally anything to stop it. It says like, fuck no, you know, like we're going to rise up and Mm -hmm. take control. Yeah. And not allow ourselves to be exploited. Which like you said, I mean, that makes Dioza like a really much more interesting character than if she's just like, I want to be in charge again. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Something else that I love about this theory that I actually think, like, I'm so excited now that I'm going to be actually kind of grumpy if this doesn't come out to be true, because what this does, so here's what's really fucking nifty about if the plan is that Second Dawn was going to end up essentially like in space was the permanent settlement and the bunker was like a temporary thing. Then that is an explanation for how the sort of bastardization and conflating, conflating of Becca's teachings with Cadogan's teachings. I think like it, it makes a lot of sense why grounder culture would have sort of emerged out of this kind of drawing bits and pieces from both the things that Becca brought down and also the things that Cadogan created. But like if Cadogan wasn't there the whole time, you know, if Cadogan lived to be a hundred as the first like flame keeper or whatever, there'd be a lot clearer and more direct tie-in in in grounder culture to his specific Mm -hmm. kind of theology. But it's all like bits and pieces and fragments that you'd pick up if somebody was either there for five minutes and then left, or if they had the bunker full of his stuff. And they didn't have actual Cadigan because Cadigan was, like, on this other planet. Mm, yeah. So it feels like it's potentially a backdoor explanation for why grounder civilization emerged as this kind of piecemeal disjointed thing that, like, borrows some things from stuff that we know Becca said, you know, like, ascended sh- a superiors, you know, like, words that are tied uh-huh, directly yeah. to Becca, along with blood must have blood, you know, words that are tied directly to Cadigan, but neither. it's neither one thing nor the other. Which would make sense if they were both with them for a short time. It would make sense mm-hmm. if Becca was somehow responsible for getting the Elygius Three ship to space. It would make sense that Ailigius Three is full of Nightbloods, like actual black blooded yeah. Nightbloods, and that's the piece. That of the science that's tied into grounder lore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of ways, I think, in, in which the idea of the 13th bunker being, in some ways, also, you know, a temporary solution, of which the big solution is, like, the second Dawn cult is going to repopulate this other planet, which is, I think, exactly the kind of megalomaniac thing you'd expect somebody like Bill Katkin <laughs> to get really juiced up by, being, mm-hmm. like, king mm-hmm. of a new planet. Uh-huh. It You know, it fits with the fact that that like Becca was a rocket scientist, it fits with the nightblood thing, it fits with his magnitude of ego, it fits with the fact that we know him to be a person who told his followers things that were not necessarily true, like everyone that was in the red goo bunker was told that they were going to live. Mm-hmm. And so the final bunker could be like, you know, everyone's like, oh, okay, this is gonna be our place forever. And he's like, yeah, haha, no, just kidding. And it also <laughs> explains my 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 biggest sort of unresolved question, you know, that I I feel like has has never been sort of sufficiently addressed by the show is why people still aren't living in the bunker when we come back. There's a working farm in the bunker Why is nobody in Polis using that? It's like as a resource. You know, Mm -hmm. they close the door and they never go back in again. Mm -hmm. And so when, you know, when Jaha finds it, it literally looks untouched. And so it always made me wonder, like, were they never there? Did the bunker just never get used? It was stocked up and was never used actually at all because there was no solution. Or it was used, but so briefly that then the people who were there left and something kind of sprung up around it, the grounders couldn't have known there was a working hydroponic farm in that bunker, or they would have, or Becca would have been like, oh, sweet, a food source. Like, let's, you know, like I... Yeah, right, right. It it, Like, the the big unanswered question was, how did the bunker as, like, a place that people could, like, live and sleep and be protected from the elements that had, like, endlessly regenerating technology, how was that not a resource that Becca utilized immediately... If people knew that it was there, you know, if, if she opens the door one day and suddenly it's like 1500 members of this cult stream out, you know, so I just I wonder if it was all kind of a misdirect and Cadigan's people didn't like live out the whole entire time in that bunker, they used Becca the minute she landed to be like... Okay, so we're going to space. <laughs> that opens up the possibility that like season six could involve our characters getting to land on an entire like Cadigan founded planet, which is my absolute dream come true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be so great. The other little bit that they dropped in this episode, when they were talking about grabbing Abby as the doctor, which we noticed in episode... Three... Yeah, it was last week, I guess, when you mentioned they did have a doctor and they needed one. Mm -hmm. Dioza says to McCreary, you know, we'll grab the doctor and then go home and find a cure. Mm -hmm. So two things. Number one, she says home. So they have some kind of home. And it's not really clear if they're talking... If she's thinking of the green of Eden as home or if she's referring to like some place, you know, like wherever this planet is or whatever. Mm -hmm. And two... What do they need a cure for? Right. And then we saw in the preview for next week is when we get introduced. It's creepy stomach time. Creepy yeah. stomach shit time. I feel like whatever they need a cure, like the cure thing and the stomach thing have to be somehow related. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the yeah. question is, because like from everything that we've seen in the previews, it looks like the stomach stuff is happening. You know, like it's among the people who are at Polis. Right. You know, because it's like Clark and Bellamy are there and Cooper is there. So it's like one crew. Right. In Polis and or like walking across the desert to try to get from Polis to Eden. Uh-huh. So those aren't Elegious people. So the question right. is, if it is the same thing. Oh, and then also there's like a bunch of stuff in the trailer. It was like, it came from below, blah, blah, blah. And Clark's saying we have to go back. So like a sort of implying that it has somehow, it somehow has some connection to the bunker. So two things with the stomach thing. That could either be something that came out of the bunker, and maybe it has something to do with the dark year that Cain mentions and Octavia is like you know the law we don't talk about the dark year right. so it could be something from the bunker or it could be the same it could be related to whatever Allegius needs a cure for and then in that case the question is how would one somebody in one crew have gotten whatever like how would they have the same condition that the Allegius people do and like the connection could be they were both in the connection could still be Cadigan You know, because Mm -hmm. it was Cadigan's Bunker Mm -hmm. and Eligius is Cadigan's company. So, like, maybe it's the same condition because it has something to do with Cadigan. The only other thing I could think of, and this is like a wild, wild theory, is that it has something to do with the strap-on gun. Like, when it fired at them, it did something.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, like, Mm -hmm. even to the
1: people who didn't get blown up. And that has something to do with it. But that seems like... Way
0: crazy. You're more creative than I am. I was just assuming that Eligius left some guards behind.
1: Oh. No, but why would they do it? Th- no, because Diosa was like, we have to evacuate because now we're at war. We have to like run back. Like, she got everyone out of there, I'm pretty sure. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that was my, I think my thinking was, like, did she leave a couple people behind to sort of guard some kind of a, like, no man's land? But no, but if she would have gotten all her people back in the ship, and then she goes back to the, yeah. So you're right. So it's either, God, that really that raises the stakes for Port Abby. if, like, if it's whatever the <laughs> thing is, is a thing that's spreading. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, God, a pandemic would also be like that's a cool ass sci-fi trope we haven't gotten any really so far yet. We got a little bit of like teeny (laughs) tiny fake out of that in season one with the like you know Murphy bleeding from the face thing, but that ended up yeah that was an artificial one, and this one is real. Biological
1: warfare, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So that could be a really interesting. I'm like I'm so excited for the for the gross stomach shit. Ever since we saw that in the trailer, I've been like, what the fuck is that? What are we going to find out what that is? Oh, my God. (laughs) And also just like the the group of people that are gathered together observing it is just in and of itself as an interesting group of people, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think it's going to be interesting to sort of see, especially with... With Abby unreachable to them, you know, because Mm -hmm, she's with mm Eligius now. If this Mm -hmm. is a thing that is spreading through one crew, that's a real test of Octavia's leadership that I think could be a place where pressure along the places where, you know, some fissures have already begun to spring up between her and one crew in terms of her sort of, you know, Mm. unilaterally accepted and unquestioned leadership that she had to forge by doing whatever horrible things they all did during the Dark Year in the bunk. Or, you know, I think one thing that I that I'm excited about that I've been watching for and we're already seeing it happen and which is so great is what is one crew and who is Octavia? and you know who is Blood Reina on her own and to them now Mm -hmm. that they're out of the bunker and they don't need to keep doing those things anymore so like on the one level like she's forged this kind of you know religious devotion to herself that isn't going to be easy to shake but also there are alternatives now they're not as starved for resources now they don't have to do the things they had to do anymore now and so where are the places where like any little thing could happen that could sort of topple her off her perch and some kind of of massive pandemic that, you know, begins to strike them after they've traded away their doctor, you know, or I guess the doctor has traded mm-hmm. away herself, mm-hmm. is a real test that she's, I think, not up to, like, how is she going to figure out how to kind of like navigate that? Mm-hmm. hmm So that's something that I'm I'm really interested in in how <laughs> if it turns out to be super gross. <laughs> but I'm very excited. And the other last piece of space lore, mythology, whatever that we should hit before we move on to the ground is that we did get some, I think really important Dioza backstory. Yes. Mm-hmm. In terms of like placing American history in some kind of a context leading up to the years before the end of the world and what her kind of role in that was. We don't know a ton about it yet, but it was interesting that it sort of confirmed our, our sort of, you know, our conversations that we had before about like the fact that she was a Navy SEAL, and now is like leading a traitor rebellion on a prison ship must mean that the the process by which you go from being like a member of the military to like overthrowing the government of whom you are technically like subordinate, it's like something, you know, significant must have happened there. So I'm hoping that we get to know more about what her world was like, you know, like more Mm -hmm. about what that government takeover was, why she like I like I want to get more of her motivations For the things that she did, because I think one thing that I I feel like they could already be setting up that I'm really interested in is, you know, we're introduced to her as the antagonist. And I think that it's totally possible we could get to the end of the season and have them plant the seeds where every single thing that Dioza has ever done from, you know, being a terrorist rebel up through, you know, the choices that she's made with, you know, these characters rebelling on the ship you know, taking it over, things like that, could be a 100% comprehensible and sympathetic. Mm-hmm. If we learn about, you know, who the fascist government was that took over and what she did to push back against them, if we learn that the mission of the ship, like with Order 11, like you said, was these people essentially being sort of dragooned into slavery against their will, and she led them in an uprising to like be able to bring them back home, you know, and if she's trying to keep her people alive in this sort of like lack of like limited resources because it's like like I think we could end up in a position where by the end of the season we're like yeah in your position I would have probably done every single thing that you did <laughs> You know, like, I think that could be really interesting. I think the
1: fact, you know, we got, we already see so many parallels and connections between Clark and Dioza. And I think mm-hmm. the fact that Clark has the sort of shot collar injury that kind of mirrors or evokes Dioza's neck injury, mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of a, mm-hmm. sort of, I mean, that sort of drives that home to me. You know, there's like all yep. these sort of like very subtle, almost subliminal ways in which is kind of like lines are being drawn between our actual protagonist, Clark, and... Diosa that suggests that like that yeah that that exact thing is going to and some level come to pass you know that she has a story you know that if we were following her story you know it would look a lot more like Clark's the things that she's done would look to us the way that the things that Clark has done look to us right now yeah you know and especially considering that like we also so far in the season have already had a few times where like things that Clark has done have been sort of you know we've gotten Maddie as a kind of like a person to react to them and sort of reflect reflect the fact that, like, Clark is herself sort of making potentially morally questionable decisions for reasons that we understand, but that we're sort of being reminded, like, just because Clark is doing that doesn't necessarily mean that she's right, you know? Mm-hmm. And just because these other people are doing this other thing doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong or right. You know, we're sort of being reminded that we're, that we're really very much in a gray area. Which I, again, is one of those things about this season that I really love that I think is, you know, this is the most effectively they've done this since Mount Weather in season two. And I think mm-hmm. potentially even, you know, this is, this has the, it's on track, I think, to be even better than, you know, than the Wallace's in, yeah. uh, in season two. Yeah. I think so too. And, and then Zeke too, you know, like if that backstory, you know, if Order 11 turns out to be something that, like, is itself kind of inherently wrong, you know, that, that it's kind of shows the people on that ship to be exploiting the prisoners in a way that is wrong, then that could also explain why Zeke chose to turn on his crewmates. Mm-hmm. You know, that he mm-hmm. didn't, he didn't yeah, side he with didn't know. Dioza, yeah He sided with what he thought was right, which was, not enslaving these people. And he agreed to help them if they promised they wouldn't kill the people who had been, you know, like if they, you know, not to kill the crew. And then they wound up going sort of sideways. And now Zeke is sort of stuck, you know. But that would also, it would make right. a lot of sense with understanding how Zeke wound up in the situation when he's clearly not aligned with these people either, you know, in terms of loyalty or in terms of like morals.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, I think if he's, you know, willing to, because they didn't, you know, they don't know that Prime Fire happened, they're expecting that, you know, you know, the people who sent him on this mission will still exist when they get back. And so I think, you know, I could see Zeke being like, sure, I'm willing to be like fired and potentially sued for breach of contract for, you know, <laughs> turning the ship around, you know, and, and not necessarily, and I think because he would have believed Dio's yeah, that like, no one's going to get hurt. You know, like, again, like we talked about last time, like, the wild card is McCreary.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also, I think the other wild card is McCreary is the fact that, you know, as we saw this episode that you kind of called last week that large portions of those criminals are loyal to MacMurray not to Diaz.
0: Yes. Yeah, that was a really interesting little fomenting of a mini rebellion that made me and, and and of course the you know the fact that that he shot the guy who he who he said that to. Now that conversation is silenced. Like now now one witness to McCreary openly plotting against Yoza is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, that's convenient <laughs> for McCreary. Yes, yes. Good point. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a very good point, yeah. You know, I think it him just shooting the guy point blank like, in the head, it certainly serves as a kind of like, you know, sending a message. I think I think a message also kind of pointedly at Zeke. You know, like this is the kind yeah, of yeah. like Motherfucker, I am. But I think. But it, I think it also. <laughs> I think because it was that same guy. I do think that it had. You know, for us, the, I mean, again, the dramatic irony thing. For us, it goes to show that all that loyalty is one-sided. There are people who are yes. loyal to mm-hmm. McCreary and he does not feel beholden to them in any way. Yeah. But it also, I think, gives us. You know, I I really dug that insight into his crafty, strategic mind. Mm-hmm. He's not mm-hmm. just like he's not a blunt instrument. You know, like he's not just the hitter. He's not just the torture guy. He's smart enough to know, like, kind of doing on some level, you know, what is doing, you know, figuring out how, how to leverage things to get what he wants. So in that moment, you know, what he needs to get what he wants is to tell the guy, like, keep your head down, stay quiet, Our you know, our day is coming. Basically, like, confirming that he has this sort of mini cohort of people who are more loyal to him than they are to Dioza if he decides to kind of call upon them. So, you know, so I definitely Feel like, okay, so that's something that like at a certain point we're gonna end up with, you know, we have we have the Octavia faction and we have one crew, and then we have space crew and Clark and Maddie in the middle. But even within those two big kind of massive opposing factions, we have introduced in this episode really significant foreshadowing of internal fracturing.
1: Yeah, because on the other hand
0: one crew is also in trouble.
1: Yeah, yeah, we have Indra mm-hmm. as kind of who's operating a, l- a little bit almost like Zeke in this episode Yeah, where, you know, where like on the surface she remains totally loyal to Octavia, but she's kind of like mm-hmm. she is she's got her own motives and she's sort of like taking care of her own people in the background and she seems to have a little group of, mm-hmm. you know, like guards who are loyal to her and who will who will help her protect
0: Kane and Abby.
1: And also, it's showing like clear misgivings about yes, what Octavia's is yes. doing.
0: Yes, one of uh, one of the many. Maybe this is a good. Maybe enters a good sort of transition point. But that one of the one of the like forty-seven incredibly specific plot points that you nailed with unbelievable accuracy about <laughs> about the Kane and Octavia and Abby story in the bunker. I was hoping to be like, "Yep, check, check, check." But one of one of the big <laughs> ones, which we talked about a lot, which you know, I mean, it was. Re- reading a lot from facial expressions, but you really like predicted it masterfully, which is the idea of like, Kane being thrown in the fighting pit for something so transparently unjust mm-hmm. is, is the bridge too far for Indra. And, mm-hmm. and yet she's still so very much like, you know, seated at the right hand of the father in terms of her, like, her role within this system that, like, because of who Octavia has become and because of who Indra is in that system that they've sort of, you know, all built together, Indra can't tell Octavia, like, hey, don't do this, you know, and, okay. and six years ago, Indra... Indra was the person that Octavia looked to for guidance. Like Indra could have told her anything, you know, like she, like, like Octavia was dependent on Indra's guidance and advice and mentorship and counsel. And, and so I think, I think in terms of the little hints and snippets that we got kind of indirectly about just how bad things got down there that everybody is willing to sort of put up with whatever crazy shit Octavia does, because she authentically forged that, like, you know, like Miller and Jackson, like genuflecting and saying the prayer words, you know, it's like, how long did that happen? And, but I think Indra being, (laughs) Indra being in a place where not only is she no longer the mentor, but she's not even a person who can give counsel in hard situations without Making things worse. That's very. I'm just feeling like,
1: you know, she could, yeah, she, or or like at the very least, she could register her objections with Octavia, but she, she does not have any, you know, faith that Octavia would listen to her.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, like, she knows, like, Indra absolutely knows that any attempt to try to talk Octavia out of this, you know, either by telling her what actually happened, you know, by trying to shine a light on places where, she could maybe like be a little bit more merciful of a leader. Octavia cannot hear that. Like Octavia cannot yeah. mm-hmm. handle dissent. And and I think mm-hmm. in in her defense kind of the 800 and whatever people who survived during whatever, you know, happened in in the dark year, you know, cannibalism fest mm-hmm. 2018, <laughs> the things that they had to do, you know, the the things they had to do and the and the shared like Guilt and horror of what they endured. Octavia did, and you know, and Kane gives her credit for it. Like she, she got them through it. Like she unified Mm -hmm. them to a place where that infighting stopped and they, and they do genuinely truly see themselves as one people. So like it isn't Mm -hmm. that she didn't accomplish what she set out to accomplish. It's that the collateral damage of that on the community as a whole and on like, her ability to be a person has been, you know, unimaginable. And one of the things that I thought was really devastating, but also I thought really setting up nicely what her arc over this season could be is that, you know, of the people in this show who are, who either are now or who have been in the past, kind of the most um, closest counselors to Octavia, we saw in this episode how she has pushed away or is pushing away all of them kind of one by one. You know, I, I think one of the things that we saw in this episode that I think tees up really interestingly, I think what what I expect to be a big part of her journey over the season is that in Indra and Bellamy and Kane, we saw like three people who she, you know, Leading up to this season, we've seen, like, people that she trusts, that she relies on, that she works with closely, that have been advisors to her, that she's been close with. And we and we see how she pushes them all away. You know, mm-hmm. so, like, we see that she has totally chosen the council of Gaia and, you know, and, and Cooper, presumably, over Indra. And I suspect that's because Gaia is black and white and Indra has some questions. You know, Indra's like... Mm-hmm. Older and wiser and more conflicted and is, and is evolving out of that kind of fanatical loyalty to systems into a loyalty that's more about people and relationships and has a little bit more flexibility where Gaia is a, you know, is a religious fanatic. Gaia is Mm -hmm. like in service to the crown. And, um, and so Indra is like, in the inner circle in that she can't fuck up but she's not really in the loop anymore and that's interesting to Mm -hmm. me. Like she's like, Mm -hmm. she's been kind of boxed out enough that she can do this kind of behind the scenes scheming and not even be noticed where, you know, where Gaia is like probably like never out of Octavia's sight. And then we see, you know, with like with Bellamy, we get like, we're like just, it's like, it's like just for a minute, you know, she's a person again, she's a sister again, you know, he's there, he came for her, and it and it lasts exactly as long as it takes until she realizes how he's looking at her, and then all the mm-hmm. walls go back up again, and all that defensiveness mm-hmm. comes back up again, and she's like, "You don't know, like you don't know what, you know, like like you don't know why I'm like this. You don't know why we had to become these people. Like you don't understand, and all of that. You know, like she lo- she has to lock that humanity back up again. And I think we see it the most pointedly in. In the way Kane talks to her, but but I think that we see it in all three of them where it's like Octavia can't let herself be a person right now. Like she can't be with anybody who remembers the version of Octavia who was vulnerable and flawed and human.
1: I think the memory part is really important, you know, because I was yeah. I, I was sort of struck with. Like the thing about this, about Octavia and the and the way that she um, sort of responds to what Cain says to her, and then later to what Bellamy says to her. I think the interesting thing is that this is an Octavia who is like completely resistant to and incapable of reflection, and like you can kind of Mm -hmm, see the mm -hmm. way that she like the way that she holds. Blood Raina together, like her identity yeah. for herself as this leader, is by suppressing memory, is by not remembering. Mm-hmm. You know, so we get mm-hmm. that moment where he mentions the dark year and she says, We don't talk about that. You know, we yeah. don't there's a law. Nobody talks about that time. And you mm-hmm. can tell like the, the you know, the big contrast between her and Kane in that scene is that Kane remembers and reflects and dwells on what they've done. He remembers all mm-hmm. the steps from what happened in five oh two to where they are today. He Mm -hmm. thinks about all those steps. He remembers what he's done. He remembers what he hasn't done, you know, what he didn't do. He remembers Mm -hmm. what Octavia's done and hasn't done. And Octavia's, like, very swift and extreme response to being reminded, I think, Mm -hmm. is important. Because it kind of shows, like, the it shows her brittleness, I think, on a number of levels. You know, it shows, like, her emotional brittleness. It shows that the way that she holds herself together is by not remembering, and I think it also kind of like hints at a certain kind of brittleness to her cult, in mm-hmm. that, you know, what from what we see, like ceremony and spectacle and chance and excitement, is sort of like a fulfillment of the id, have replaced reflection. You know, there's that moment uh-huh, at the beginning uh-huh. when when Gaia says, we don't revel in death, we honor it, or something mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. we got that little hint at the end of 502 as well, when we sort of see Ethan rattling. Like, everyone's cheering, cheering, cheering. And, and like, of course, we find out in this episode that, like, it's not just the, you, you know, if you win, you don't necessarily live. You have to put on a spectacle, right? right? Like, so it right. is about yeah. getting the crowd into it. It's about making the crowd enjoy it. So there's a, there's a tension. There's a disconnect between... Gaia saying we don't revel in death and Gaia sort of beginning the, the ceremony saying we honor death, you know, we don't, we don't revel Mm -hmm. in death or whatever it is. We, we honor it. And everybody kind of like saying, and also with you, you know, like the kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, (laughs) it's like the equivalent of like the thing you chant in church out, you know, Mm -hmm. automatically, you know, there's, there's what they say and then there's the reality. And it seems like that this is the, we're at a stage in the bunker where the sort of ceremony, the formalities, have sort of bifurcated from mm-hmm. the reality of it, and the the theology that Gaia is speaking, which you know, I mean, I will, I, as far as we know, she's Gaia still believes that. We don't know. We haven't gotten her perspective. Like I'm, I'm willing to believe that Gaia is not cynical here, right? But there is a kind mm-hmm. of disconnect between we are not, you know, death is, this is like a big serious thing and we are are honoring the dead. But if you don't put on a good show, then you die anyway. The sort of like religious function of this, of this, of these fights versus the social function. And the social function is this kind of release of aggression and tension that comes through kind of like this like death drive wish to watch people kill each other.
0: Well, and and Kane even says, you know, like we like, he sort of traces the trajectory of it, you know, like we let justice become vengeance and we let vengeance become spectacle. You know, like he mm-hmm. remembers when this was in the beginning, this was a solution that Octavia came up with to settle disputes that felt fair. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, and, and it was even at the time he was like, all right, well, this is a little bloodthirsty, but there was a, a degree of justice to it and the motivation for it was based in feeling that this was something that would hold the community together. And yes. And, and also, it evolved, you know, kind into. of solve a little bit of their population problem
1: Yeah, eventually. You know, it was yeah. like it was it was practical on a number of levels. And in mm-hmm. the six years it has sort of morphed into something more sinister Mm -hmm. and it it is sort of like it has morphed into its own you know it's kind of running on its own impetus now like they're down to under a thousand people they didn't need to lose that many people to keep going you know like this is this is a a sort of a ritual that is running on its own steam at this point that has Mm -hmm. and we can kind of see also how like this is the ritual through which Blood Raina has sort of consolidated her power and her status. And yeah. we also see, I mean, I think the, the other really creepy thing, but very, very telling thing about Octavia in this episode, I thought it was really, really interesting watching
0: Octavia and Dioza sizing each other. Yes. Oh my God. God, that was like Dioza being like, yeah, nice face paint. And Octavia immediately feeling yeah. like, not knowing what to do with somebody who isn't in awe of her.
1: Yes, exactly, and like, like it was beautiful because, like, of course, Dioza has instantly sized her up. But on yeah, the other yeah. hand, you can see, like, you can see in Octavia, and I think this is the thing that Bellamy Bellamy did not reckon with and did not realize was happening until later. Mm-hmm. You can see that for Octavia instantly. What she sees is that that bunker opening and these people arriving is a threat to her power.
0: And mm-hmm. the thing
1: that the thing that Bellamy, I think. Didn't sort of bargain with that he runs up against when he wants to go talk to her. Sort of like you know, even when when he is trying to take charge, like oh, we have twelve hundred people, and she's like, Oh, actually eight hundred, you know, whatever, eight hundred and fourteen was it? Uh huh. Um, so you know, she is not purely grateful to be out of that bunker, and mm. she isn't thinking merely. Oh, thank God we're free to live, you know, like let's just, let's just get a chunk of that livable territory on earth and settle there. Mm-hmm. Octavia wants to hold on to power. Like Bladrena wants to stay in power. Like she's used to being, she's used to being in a position where, you know, like with a minuscule flick of her chin, mm-hmm. people will begin to go pack up their stuff and not a moment before. And that when she's being lifted, you know, when she's being like repelled out of the hole, you know, her priestess will start to chant out of the, you know, from the ashes we rise and everybody mm-hmm. chants with them because this is like a religious ceremony to them, you know. So so Bloodreina has sort of become this whole other beast that I think both like is and isn't Octavia, but I think like Bloodreina can only exist when Octavia does not reflect or remember or think about what she's done you know like blood reina can't exist if octavia remembers everything and i think like there's a there's an interesting sort of like tension in bellamy appearing for her you know like there's like the beautifully pure moment where she's just octavia again and she like literally jumps into his arms with like yes. which just like made me cry you know but i think you know but instantaneously you can see you know she sees clark and like i think you know, in that moment, there's a kind of, like, she's glad to see that she's alive. But on the other hand, I think, you know, Clark is another kind of threat. Like, here's another woman mm-hmm. who has always had a lot of leadership power. You know, you sort of see her shutting down that part of her that is Octavia, who has individual relationships. And so, yeah. So I think there's, a, there's a, like, a bunch of, like, really interesting sort of, like, bifurcations being set up with Octavian. It's sort of, like remembering versus forgetting, you know, like, or, or burying and kind of, like, ceremony versus sort of, like, religion as ceremony versus religion as an actual, like, functional set of beliefs, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, you know, like, yeah. religion as sort of as the act of ceremony versus the meaning of it and the ways that those things kind of get split apart. So, yeah. And Cain obviously being the sort of, like, always, oh, you know, Cain fascinatingly always being the figure who remembers. And it's so, like, there's something so beautiful, too, about him being Vera Kane's son, you know? Like, yeah. he's the son of the person on the Ark whose job it was to remember, to sort of, like, the keeper of the memory of the Earth, the memory of where mm-hmm. they came from, the memory of, you know, supposedly the reason that they were doing any of those horrible things that they did up on the Ark, you know? And Cain is now the kind of, like, keeper of the memories of, like, why are we, why are we, we start doing these things? Right. You know, like... Where did we begin and why did we do it and are we still you know where did we sort of like lose our path.
0: Well and I think that one of the things that that I I found just so poignant about him in this episode I mean like well I mean everything like that this was some of the <laughs> best. Oh my god. Best. Amazing. This is an incredible episode for yes. Ian. Also um, also and, and I
1: another knew- episode of a TV show where Michael Ian Cusick comes out of a hatch. <laughs>
0: Yes. <laughs> and, and he actually like with the, with his hair like that, he looks more like, you know, aged up Desmond yes. than he does he Marcus does. Kane in some ways. Like, <laughs> like he, there's a lot of Desmond in that, in that shaggy little, yeah. yeah. Um, but this was a, I mean, like the Kane and Abby of it all was amazing. And we'll, you know, we'll do my shippy flails when we do our roundtable podcast. But in terms of the story, um, you know, I, I have always been, I've really always loved the relationship between Kane and Octavia. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I knew, and I knew coming into this season <laughs> after we talked to Marie at Unity Days, I knew it was not going to be <laughs> like, well, I knew it was not going to be all, you know, all sunshine and roses. And, and I was still, I was totally unprepared for just how, you know, just how gutted I was watching it all play out. Because the thing is like, like what's so painful about it is like you can see, you can see exactly why he's so dangerous mm-hmm. to her. Like she can't, she can't silence that voice. She can't ignore him. She knows that he's mm-hmm. right. She knows that he's saying the things that he's saying out of this deep, deep like care for her. This belief that she can, in the leader she could be, in this faith that that person is still in there. That there's like a better way. Like he, like he has like the kind of leader that he's trying to make her. Would force her to have to face with some humility all of these things in herself. that like she, she cannot look, in, she cannot look mm-hmm, inward at, mm-hmm. and and she knows like and the and the progression to you know her reaching a point where she's literally like her sword is in her hand and she's going to kill him mm-hmm. herself. Like, not even, not even just put him into the pit or put him into the pit a second time, but like, she's gonna be the person who like cuts off Marcus Cain's head. That's how much she can't hear him say, like you're better than this, Yes. you know, like this isn't like you you don't have to be this person, you could be a different person, and like I've been to where you are, you know, like i like I was there on the ark when we were the people doing this militaristic, you know. Like, totalitarian shit that you hated. He appeals
1: to her through memory. He says, remember your mother. You know, remember what happened yeah. to her. I did that. Yeah. I think about that. And she completely shuts it out.
0: She's like, she will not remember. Yeah. She will not. And it's interesting in light of Jaha references Aurora and it gets through. And six years later, she's so fearful of anything that takes her back to a previous iteration of Octavia that the Aurora card doesn't work twice. Yes. Yes. You know? Yeah. You can see like it 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 doesn't even penetrate. You know?
1: Like she doesn't even register on her face Mm -hmm. which is such a huge difference from her reaction. Like I mean that is like such a beautiful moment of like she lashed out. Yeah. It's like it's a beautiful moment of like emotional check-in for where Octavia is whether that lands and this time it's just
0: like nothing. You know? Yep, yep, yeah. So, so that, like, just as a, as a way of sort of, you know, reminding us, like, how thick and, you know, and high those walls are mm-hmm. that she's, like, led around her humanity. But I think the thing, you know, in that scene that they have in, in the little, like, pre-conclave, like, locker room and then in the, in the speech that he makes, which interestingly, according to the to the script sh- to screen, so like that was a late addition, which I think is actually was a terrific choice that he's mm-hmm. speaking mm-hmm. as she comes down, like that he hasn't given up. It is he's not making a silent gesture of protest. He's not. He never stops trying to change her mind. Yes, trying to appeal to her. Like like so, I think in, also- in a way, like if he had gone in there and just not. I was going to say,
1: and also I think it drives home the fact that that part of the reason, or I mean, probably maybe the whole reason she's doing that, why she's going down there to kill him, is because he is a threat to her. Yes. he He is so dangerous. Yeah, He is a revolutionary. He is calling out to crumble this version of a bunker society from its foundations. Mm-hmm. And with that, down goes Bladrena, and
0: she just becomes Octavia again. You know, that's yeah. why he's a huge threat. And she knows, because she was on his side when he did it to Pike, she knows he can yes. do this. Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. the thing I think that's so interesting. Like, the, the parallels to um, – 309, is 309? 308 and 309, the, um, were really, really interesting, both in, in some of the Kane and Abby stuff, which we'll come back to, but also in the Kane, the parallels between Kane's relationship with Pike and Kane's relationship with Octavia, which, you know, sort of ironically fell apart because of, of Pike and what Mm -hmm. Pike did is really, um, there's, there's just so much to unpack there where they're both relationships where it started out being somebody that Kane, was close Mm -hmm. to you know like Kane and Pike were really close Kane and Octavia were close Kane's closeness with Octavia was forged a lot in the wake of their rebellion against Pike which sort of adds another additional really like kind of juicy layer to it but like he's always been a person who is willing to sacrifice himself and step in front of that bullet To do the right Mm -hmm. thing. And it's made immeasurably harder and more painful for him in this episode than it even was before. Because of his relationship with Abby. And because of the really vulnerable place that Abby is in right now. Where he knows that if he dies, he's leaving her with no support and Mm -hmm. protection. Mm -hmm. And and that the next time, she could get like... There's nothing to stop her from like... She could be the next Mm -hmm. step to go. You know, she could end up in the fighting pit next. If Octavia catches her next instead Mm -hmm. of Indra. You know, so it's incredibly painful and and you know heartbreaking and and precarious but it's also like it's a place that he's been before and Octavian knows that when he did it the last time that it worked like they had to like s- sneak out and escape and it you know took Lincoln's life but like he pulled people away from Pike. Mm-hmm. You know, like he managed to convince enough people to help him that they, you know, tried to get everybody else free, and they and they did, they they did get free. It was Lincoln's choice to go back in to save his own mm-hmm. people, but like Kane's plan mm-hmm. worked, and and so I think that she knows she knows that he's dangerous. She knows that as long as he's alive and there, he's never going to stop saying these things. Like he's like Kane's never going to give up. On trying to make Octavia Mm -hmm. better. The same way he, like, he never gave up on Mm -hmm. Bellamy, you know. And so every minute that he is there in the bunker that she thinks that they're stuck in forever and alive and talking, like, he's the most dangerous person in her entire Mm -hmm. life. Because he, he sees her humanity and unlike Indra, you know, he sees it and is... Reckless enough, or is I think already, already out of the power hierarchy enough that he has less to lose, that he'll just say to her the things that like, there's nobody left who talks to Yeah, right exactly. Now. Yeah. Like there is absolutely nobody in that bunker who will stand down there and say, I publicly flout the thing that you created to bring unity that we've all accepted as this Bloody religious ritual that like our entire culture is now founded on. I stand here and I reject it, you know. And the poor guy sitting there with him is like, the fuck you doing, man? Like, <laughs> like you
1: realize that if you don't fight me and make it look good, then we're, then I am yeah. definitely going to die instead like, of just me. We're both going to yeah, die.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you stupid yeah. idiot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, you know, so I think, but I think that it's because the Kane and Octavia stuff, I think is, is a really good example of like, of what I was saying before of like the, the action sequences are, are increased, like are, are not decreased, but are like immeasurably like, ex- you know, increased in stakes and, and in how sort of like breathless and nail biting they are because they did all of that character work before. So like we see, you know, in 502, we see at the very beginning, when they discover that the bunker door is sealed, that Kane and Abby are like in there with mm-hmm. her. Like, they're like, uh, Guy is not mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it's, Cooper's not there, you know, it's like Octavia and Indra and Abby and Kane and Jaha are like the leadership decider mm-hmm. posse you know it's like Kane is and Kane's like still like right away like he's still pushing her you know he's like you got to take this shit seriously but he's he's in the room and he's a person that she listens to and you know they even have like the moment when they're all sort of gathered around like when Jaha dies where it's a sort of like truce kind of moment of connection you know between them like Octavia is fighting to get the people out that are like trapped inside the farm and then it like includes Kane and Abby like there's you know like, it's not super explicit but it's certainly like Okay, they're not like best friends necessarily, but they're like, like they're on the same team. Like he's, he's on her advisory council. He's the official Sky Crew ambassador sitting at that table with her, you know, repping Sky Crew's clan, whatever mm-hmm. it needs. Um, and, and so because we started with that and because we got all these reminders, you know, of Kane regretting and how deeply he sort of thinks about and is pained by the things that he did on the ark and the man that he used to be. You know, seeing him in like thrown into this like insane fighting pit battle at the very beginning is even more, I think, shocking and painful, you know, than it would be. But it's also what I thought was so perfect about how it was staged is the first thing that he goes for is a shield. Yeah. Like yeah. the first thing that he goes for is like, like he doesn't. He only kills the one person and he waits until the absolute last possible minute. He fights in the most Marcus Kane way where the first thing that he's trying to do is just like, it's like Mm self-defense. You know, he'll like, he will bonk you over the head with his shield and he will like try to protect himself. But everyone else goes straight for like... You know, how bloody and dramatic can I make this? And, and he is basically like, he's fighting the way Octavia fought in the Conclave, mm-hmm. where it's like, you don't have to kill everybody. You just have to be the last mm-hmm. one standing. You know, like you just have to kill whoever's second to last. And I thought that was a perfectly in character for him. But also, you know, you can see we're like, Already at that early stage, like, he's not playing the game the way you're supposed Mm -hmm, to. mm -hmm. Like, you're supposed to get in there and immediately start chopping heads off. Mm -hmm. And he is basically, like, he's just trying to survive. Like, he's just trying to get out of there alive. He kills the last guy because he has to. And he has that moment where we see him kind of, like, hacking at him. And the crowd is like, yes, okay, finally we're getting the blood that we bought our tickets and paid to come see. And then he just snaps, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And... And so I, I think that that, whatever happened between them over this intervening six years, like, he's still, he's a public person. He's an influential person in whatever way, you know, his status still, still allows him to be. And so seeing, you know, seeing somebody like that go into the pit and not play the game, I think it's like, it's fundamentally destabilizing to her, I think. Yeah, I think so. So, like, the
1: most traumatic death scene i have ever watched was in saving private ryan when there's the two soldiers who are like wrestling with a knife and the nazi soldier sort of overpowers the american soldier and stabs him in the heart and like the really really the reason why it was like so upsetting like i was sobbing that was the part of saving private ryan that like broke me i think it's because like because the scene is, like, so intimate, you know, it's not just a sort of, like, boom, 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 you know, punch, punch, stab, stab, camera cuts away, move on sort of thing. Like, you see the guy losing his strength, and then you watch the knife go into his chest. Like, the camera stays on his face the whole time. Like, the whole time, you see him realizing that he's losing and that he's dying You know, and you see him experience the pain and you see the other soldier, you know, realize what's happening. Like, you know, so many action scenes are sort of like the deaths are more about, you know, the kind of like the chess game. Like how many guys are left? Did you beat this guy? Did you beat that guy? What moves do you have to make in order to win? Right. And they're about spectacle, even if they're sort of gruesome. You don't experience the death emotionally as a death a lot of the time. And Mm -hmm. then also like for the killers, a lot of the time you don't experience what it emotionally means to them to be a killer. And, and so I think there's, a, there's an element of that to what happens with Kane in that moment where like, you know, he snaps and he fights back and like, okay, great. It's a spectacle now. It's a real fight. Cool. Like this guy who's sort of like, the, like the, uh, the underdog rises up. Like he got cut in the leg and now he's mad and you know, all right, we have a fight. And there's a sort of turning point where it's like, okay, it's like cool to win. When you start smashing the guy into the floor, that's a little bit upsetting. But I think, like, if he had turned around and, like, thrust his fists into the air and gone, like, ah, yeah, and then the crowd would have gone, like, ah, yeah. It's because he stood up and started crying. Yeah. And everyone in that room had to experience that person dying as trauma, you know, as, like, something that, that was, like, as a death. Like, not just sort of, like, I'm the last one standing, but, like, that person is dead now and I did this and I'm emotionally devastated. Like, K made it awkward, basically. Like, he made everybody for a moment. Like, in that moment, he made everybody do the thing that they paid lip service to at the beginning, which is to, like, honor death, to really experience death as death and look at it for a moment, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, I think, interestingly, that's what happened. And that's the thing that's, like, that's no longer supposed to happen in that arena, you know? Like, they're not supposed to be empathizing with the people who are dead. right. They're supposed to be, like, cheering for the winners because they won, you know. And I think there's a, that kind of, like, moment of being forced to sort of, like, mourn for a second. Like, again, reflect, think about what happened. Mm-hmm. It's like, that. No, 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 we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to pause and think about that. We're supposed to be like, whoa, this is badass.
0: <laughs> there's nothing in that moment that happens that anyone there can frame it as, like, it's a good thing that we gather here and we do this. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a positive, unifying, necessary part of who we are as one crew that we fulfill this right together. Like there's nothing in what happens in that first scene in the fighting pit with Kane that anybody can feel sort of complacent about their role in, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that his ability to sort of shake up the complacency that Octavia has spent, you know, six really brutal years forging, where she just like you said, like she just sort of nods her chin and everyone just goes and does what she tells them to do. His unwillingness to play her game in that performative way, like like he'll mm-hmm. he'll kill somebody to keep himself alive and to save Abby. Mm-hmm. I I will do the bare minimum, but, like, I won't put on the show for you. Like, I will will defend myself in this battle to the death because I don't want to die. But I'm not going to give you or anyone else here the satisfaction of, like, being able to relish it. Yeah, he's not going to fulfill the part of the ceremony that
1: is meant to reflect back to one crew the sort of version of themselves that they prefer to see. Yes, and instead, exactly. he's yeah. he's going to reflect back to them a different version of what they're doing. And it's not one that they want to see or that they can tolerate. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's why, like, Octavia cannot pardon him. Because he can't yeah. be reintegrated into one crew after that. He really can't. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. he is going to be walking around as the sort of, like, embodiment of, like, here is a different version of who you really are. Yeah, And this version means, like you said, we can't all just, like, smile and go
0: to church on fight days and feel good about it, you know? And she knows that he's never going to change.
1: Exactly. And she knows that. And she knows that, again, like, this is why he's a threat. So this is why he has to fight again. Why she has to try to force him, you know, to comply, not with the law per se. You know, the law is, like, sort of, like, she knows he's not guilty. Again, like, the law is kind of a, a fiction that they're both sort of like playing mm-hmm. with in this mm-hmm. moment. She has to try to force him to comply with the mores of her society. Mm-hmm. And he won't, you know? Which is just like, if you think about like Marcus Cain in season one versus this Marcus Cain, it's kind of amazing.
0: It is. His journey. I, I mean, his, <laughs> I mean, it's so beautiful, but it's also like, he was heartbreaking to watch in this episode. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. There's a way in which you can kind of construct, you know, a, a version of this narrative that is the sort of Shakespearean tragedy of Marcus Cain, the last good man standing, who keeps watching all of the things that he's tried to build, get destroyed by other people over and over and over again. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> people mostly named Blake. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs>
0: fair. That's fair. But, but it, if he had died in this episode, which we knew he wasn't going to because his name's in the description for the next one. So we knew going into it like, <laughs> already he's fine, you know, which I'm glad that I knew because, because I, I was texting you, I was like, okay, I know, like factually I know, but like, oh my God, like, oh my, like, <laughs> like I was so, oh my God, I was losing it. But you know, but if like, if he had died, like if she had chopped off his head in this episode, that would have been like. A perfect, clean downward and downward and downward and downward spiral. mm-hmm. And so what I liked about the way that it actually ended and the new territory that it opens up is it feels like there's an element of like death and rebirth happening for both Kane and Abby because mm-hmm. we watched them both hit like absolute utmost rock bottom mm-hmm. in this episode, and there's literally nowhere to go but up like physically) <laughs> they like both in like rising out of the bunker and then like getting in the ship and, you know, going to the sky. But, but I think for Kane, you know, the, him as himself, him, what he means to the narrative, him and the role that he fulfills for Octavia and everybody else, you know, I think why I love him so much and why I think that he's, that he's so important and why it's so, I think, powerful watching how six years have transformed Bellamy into a leader who's very much in that mold. Mm hmm. What Kane represents is somebody whose entire sense of identity from the whole time basically that we've known him has been forged by, you know, we, we meet him just before the moment in his life where he realizes his whole life was a lie.
1: Mm, mm-hmm.
0: So like from the culling onwards, what we're watching is, is the fallout of this man who's, you know, an adult in his 40s who's lived decades under this fucked up totalitarian arc system and we watch him like rewriting his own narrative to like not be that guy again you know and it's and it's sometimes it's like two steps forward five steps back you know like he creates this bond with Abby and then he's just like nope you're trouble i'm going to shock lash you you know and they have all this <laughs> you know and he he makes dumb mistakes sometimes and he allies with the wrong people sometimes and trusts people that he shouldn't but it's like it's all predicated on this constant awareness that he has of Not wanting to make the mistakes that he made and not wanting to let other people that he cares about, especially the younger ones, make the mistakes that he made because he knows what that leads to. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, I think one of the things I've always really loved about his relationship with the Blakes is that, you know, his age and experience, you know, like they've moved away a little bit from textually explicitly creating divisions between the adults and kids in terms of like, their worlds you know like we're in, in mm-hmm. the in the first season it was like there was a grown-up world and kid world and then season two was about like uh-oh grown-up world and kid world have integrated sort of explosively and everyone is at odds and they're not really a team yet and now like when characters break off into groups they tend to be age-diverse groups like it isn't like mm-hmm. that they're sort of segregated in that way so they've moved away a little bit from making that something that's like transparently like a theme and the time jump obviously making a difference where it's like everyone's an adult now except for Maddie basically. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. what I think that they use Kane for really effectively, particularly in his relationship with Clark and with the Blakes, is that, you know, because of his age and his experience and his wisdom, like he can look at the choices that they're making and he can tell them I know where you're going to end up if you keep going down that road, mm-hmm. and the thing that's really heartbreaking about it is that is never a thing that 16 year olds will hear from an adult. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like that is like that is in some ways that is the least useful thing that you can say to a bratty yeah. teenage girl. Yeah, you know, you're sort
1: of like I can tell that you are a well-meaning 40 something guy who never had kids because exactly. Yes. Know.
0: That is you the know, surefire way to make them not
1: do what the the thing exactly
0: you're yeah <laughs> so <to> exactly <laughs> so the thing that's like I think the sort of fundamental tragedy of it is you know is that you know I mean if we're if we're going to continue with our sort of classical you know allegories that he's totally the Cassandra of this oh story. yeah you know, totally like, totally like he's you know he's right almost always and nobody ever pays attention to it <laughs> you know and it's just yeah, so yeah. sad. Yeah. It's so yeah. devastating because it's like the leaders in this show who we tend to believe are the people who should be leaders are the ones that have that mindset. You know, people like Kane had, people like Roan have, where it's like there's room for flexibility. Nobody wants war just for the sake of war. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, and and you're willing to sort of try to find compromise and balance. I think Dioza has that capacity.
1: Yeah, and Bellamy is there now too. You know, Bellamy
0: is Bellamy is totally there. Bellamy yeah. is is like 100% that guy. So I, I think that they just the way that we see Kane as a person who is like so shaped by his past. And this is one thing that I really liked about about 502, that I liked about the Black Rain episode last season is those moments where we get the collision of like all the different Marcus Kanes that Marcus Kane has been kind of crashing into each other and you know, anytime he's forced to face Things that he did when he was that guy on the arc that he now wishes that he wasn't, but he can't really hide from it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that Octavia is a person who, that's the absolute worst, most dangerous thing you could ask her to do, is try to find a way to be a leader that synthesizes all those different Octavias. Mm -hmm. And we see her kind of start off on that path in 502, that we see, like, Maybe there is a version of her, like, her grounder self and her girl under the floor self and her lost a mother too young self and her resented the arc for the way that it treated its people self and to sort of fuse all those things to become something new. And then what we see, the sort of flash forward, which we haven't filled all the blanks in yet, is that, you know, she's so locked into this persona of Blood reina that even to her, those other Octavias, like, can't be permitted to exist, let alone to her people, but, it's like, mm-hmm. she can't let you know like she's so happy to see Bellamy and but then he's also immediately a threat to her because again mm-hmm. like with Kane like no one else except for those two is going to talk to her the way Kane and Bellamy talk to her because they talk to her like she's a person they care mm-hmm. about deeply but they also see her and she mm-hmm. just like she cannot like allow that to stand so i just i am relieved for Kane's sake that he got an evac <laughs> but i feel like introducing this early the fact that Octavia is so afraid of Kane and afraid of what Kane could do to her rule and to her sense of self and to the stability that she's forged and to what he you know dredges up of these memories that she has suppressed you know like that like terror in her face when mm-hmm. she's like first rule of the dark Year is we do not talk about the dark year you know <laughs> <laughs> first you rule of fight club is we don't talk about the
1: dark year right. Yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs>
0: But, like, I – but, like, I – you know, I think planting the seed of that, like, getting to, like, the literal absolute worst place that they could get to of her, like, pulling out her sword and being like, I'm literally about to chop off your head except for the the ceiling is caving in. So, you know, (laughs) saved by the bell. (laughs) You know, like – but, like, to me – to me what that sets up is that I think even if they're not in the same storyline, I think that Cain – and, and who he is to Octavia and whatever is the thing that like, they did things together. Like that, this is the thing, like speaking of backstory that I am like dying to get more of, Cain was actively complicit in whatever the hell went down during the dark year which he admits to textually several times. First of all, that it's clear... I mean, like, uh, cannibalism, obviously, but, like, all the other sort of, like, whatever else other sort of shit went down. He and Abby were obviously both party to it because it's pretty clear that that's the thing that is weighing so sort of miserably and heavily on their consciences. He also, you know, tells Octavia, basically, like, look, like you did your job, you held us together during this time. Like I had your back, but like, I can't do it anymore. And he Mm. says, you know, in his, in his speech and, you know, in the fighting pit, he's just like, look, like, I'm not like, we're all guilty. My hands aren't clean. He's like, I, like, I allowed this, like we became these people and I was silent and I didn't say this then, but I'm saying it now. So I think something that that is interesting that may get unpacked when we get the, you know, what I'm expecting will be flashbacks in the episode titled The Dark Year and potentially in the episode titled The Last. I think those are both places where, you know, we could either flashbacks or at least have addressed what actually went down in that bunker. But it's pretty clear that he and Octavia were not this estranged the entire time because he was part of whatever she was doing and was supporting Mm -hmm. whatever she was doing. So this is like this is a recent sort of wrinkle in their relationship and that for some significant portion of the time they were in the bunker together, that he was still a person that she relied on and trusted. So I think there's also maybe like an element of like betrayal there, like that the Mm -hmm. part of her that still needs that support to feel like she's doing the right thing feels wounded on some level when he doesn't have her back. But I feel like, I am anticipating, just because, you know, because we sort of let out with this, like, so hit it so hard so early, that I think even if they're not in the same kind of plot, like the things that he said to her, the things that he has sort of forced her, trying to force her to face up about herself, I think we're going to see those same kinds of themes, like, echoed by Bellamy.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think a running sort of piece I expect that we're going to see a lot of, you know, in her arc over the course of the season is, are there things that like Kane tried to say to her and didn't get through and maybe Bellamy can and will? Yeah. You
1: know? yeah I mean, you could see that Bellamy instantly rattles her, you know, I mean, I think yeah. both, both mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, we see those, you know, the sort of like her guard drop for a moment and when she flings herself into her arms, but even when... You know, like, he says, follow me, and she does, you know? So, Mm. and then even in that conversation that they have in that little room, you know, you can see, again, like, she's she is a little bit rattled and defensive, like, he's kind Mm. of under her skin a little bit, partly because he's questioning her, but I think also because because as Bellamy, she doesn't know how to, you know, she can't just be like the imperious blood reina and be like, how dare you question right, right. me? You know, because it's Bellamy. I do love that Bellamy was instantly like, you've been reading too much of it, haven't you? <laughs> right. <Yep. laughs> uh, nerd Bellamy strikes again. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was an interesting callback to the metamorphosis thing, because I think the fascinating thing about, about Octavia is it seems like for being the character who's sort of tied to metamorphoses most strongly, she also has a character at, se- at this point who seems like she's really ossified. You know, mm-hmm. she is resisting change. She, like, she will not change. She's being presented with opportunities, you know, by Cain to sort of evolve away from what they become and she refuses. So I think there's a kind of interesting tension there too, Whereas like, she's an organism that was changing and evolving and adapting and seems to have kind of like stopped. And so now the question is like, can she readapt? Yeah. In a weird sort of perverse way, you could say that Dioza came along at the exact right moment for Octavia. Yeah. When oh, yeah. No, totally. She needs, like, her entire blood raina, her entire rule and cult and everything, you know, she built it on the notion of there has to be an enemy. Like, she took mm-hmm. what Jaha told her and ran with it. And so, like, and, and as Kane was kind of pointing out, the, like, time when the kind of, like, you are one crew or you are the enemy of one crew, like, that was sort of running out of steam. Like, that was, that was something that has, it was like a zombie corpse at that point, just sort of, like, shambling on. Mm -hmm. And so, and then, like, out of the sky into her lap drops this new enemy that she can sort of, so I think, like, you know, there's a kind of, like, really chilling way where, Octavia and Dioza, you can already see them locking into a sort of like this relationship where it's like they are antagonists who absolutely need each other as antagonists. Like Dioza was also losing control. Um, you know, you saw with McCurry, yeah. she was starting to lose control. But as soon as she's like, you dumbass, we have a war, she's going to be able to like lock everybody down again, you know? So like yep. there's there's an interesting parallel there, there between Dioza and Octavia in terms of like they need each other to be the enemy to keep their people in line Mm -hmm. in a way that like, again, like Octavia instantly recognizes this and Bellamy, you know, and Kane are still in that mode of like, there seems to be plenty of space guys. Maybe we can just like share. Sharing is sharing is caring. Sharing (laughs) is fun. You know, (laughs) like they're kind of left like holding the bag off to the side. Like, uh, the fuck just happened. Like I thought we were going to be okay for a second. And then whoops. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the setup that we're already getting for what the journey is going to be that the Blakes go on, I think is something that I'm so excited to watch play out.
1: It's funny because like the first time I, I watched this episode, when we got to the end, you know, where Octavia sort of is is stumbling by Bellamy and says, this is your fault. And they're kind of on the outs again. I was sort of like, well, like, I was first of all like, what the fuck? And then I was like, well, that was really fast. And on rewatch, actually, I think, you know, it was one of those things where, like, the first time, like, she was so happy to see him. The hug was so lovely. I was just sort of coasting on, like, yay, we're together, Blake. I I think I was, like, more in in Bellamy's mind frame of sort of like each other were back together. And so it was like a total shock when she turned on him. Second time around, I was paying a lot more attention, I think, to, you know, I was kind of looking for it, but I was paying a lot more attention to like, to, to sort of how Octavia was feeling about this. And the second time around, I definitely was like, you know, you could see it going from that high of seeing him and just being, just being, you know, sort of uncomplicatedly happy that her brother was alive then step by step by step you know you could see the sort of like you could see the the fray in the rope you know sort of like pulling apart pulling apart you could see not just his misgivings at the fighting pit but then also her sort of misgivings about like who are these people i don't trust them i don't really she never really trusted his deal with them you know like down to yeah. that when when miller comes out you know like the plot point with miller is that you know bellamy made a deal what made the deal with Do's and the deal said nobody get nobody is armed and Octavia's people are armed and Bellamy says like we made a deal and Octavia says that was your deal you know so that right there there's a sort of like sense of like you know he automatically is like hey we're allies they made this deal for us and she's like you made that deal for you I didn't make that deal right. my people are my right. people we're gonna do what we're gonna do you know so I think there's like it was actually much more sort of like it was a, it was more of a continuum. I think, than I noticed the first time around. The sort of turnaround at the end, I think it's, I think she's meant to seem – obviously, she's meant to seem to be unreasonable because it is unreasonable. Oh, yeah, yeah, Not yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, like yeah. it is It is a sort of also a, a sort of demonstration of how black and white and absolute she is now. Yes. But I do think like, you know, there's, there's sort of reminders, more reminders than I had noticed the first time through that – apart from that one moment of just like joy at seeing him she never stopped being that absolute mm-hmm. you know like that mm-hmm. that it was more just a sort of like bellamy being like yay sister oh what <laughs> yeah know, yeah that of octavia having actually changed
0: yeah i think that we get you know we get a we get a tiny moment of of reprieve where she's just so happy to see him that her sort of you know that her guard drops for a second but i i think that even with him Just that is too much vulnerability already, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. like she's like, even to him, she's already like, nope, I've exposed too much. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's something that I think is really interesting that like, you know, sort of subtle little reminders, you know, from like planted all the way through that like, they're not each other's first priority, Right away, you know, like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she is his first priority in that she's why he strikes this bargain. He wants to get her back and he wants to get her out of this bunker, but he's not willing to do that at the cost of all of these other people's lives and at the cost of like, you know, this really carefully negotiated really difficult truce that he's come to with this really, you know, unpredictable and volatile set of new enemies. Like, he, like, he worked hard. He had, like, play all the cards in his pack to get that, you know, to get Dioza to make that deal. And it's for Octavia, but it's not Mm -hmm. so that Octavia can do whatever the fuck she wants to. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that, yeah, I think that just sort of setting up the fact that, like, they are, I think, very quickly going to find themselves – you know, on opposing sides of this. Like, I think it's going to be really hard for Bellamy to sort of stay unequivocally on Team Octavia. Like, you know, he's not going to bow and call her Blood Raina. Like, he's not going yeah. <laughs> to genuflect his sister. But then if he doesn't, you know, like, if he sticks around and he's treating her like a little sister, even, even respectfully, like, I mean, even like a little sister who's in her 20s now and is an adult and he, you know, is giving her respect in space. But still, like... He's not going to treat her like she's Caesar. And mm-hmm. so like how does that fracture? In you know, like like the whole one crew blood reina thing is predicated upon absolutely nobody steps out of line and if you do you're killed immediately, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's why Kane's dangerous, you know, is that like Kane will just say this stuff. And I think that Bellamy coming from the same position but with even more freedom and even more latitude and even less likely. I mean like, I think I could very much see us in a situation ending up where either like either she's in a position where she has to weigh whether or not Bellamy needs to get executed. You know, like, is that what the sparring is? You know, does Bellamy end up in the pit? Like your choices are, okay, Blood Raina. either you adhere to this fanatical black and white, everyone who does these things goes into the fighting pit rule with no exceptions, or you make an exception, which means it's possible to make exceptions, and that throws a wrench in your entire sense of self. You know, like mm-hmm. like either like either she has to make an exception for Bellamy, which acknowledges that exceptions are possible and that nothing is that clear cut, or she has to put her own brother in the fighting ring. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. There's interesting. Blake sibling sort of fracturing, I think, foreshadowed really nicely in this episode, kind of using Kane as like, you know, like the first person trying to get through to her who she's not going to listen to. And the second person who's going to try that she's not going to listen to is going to be Bellamy. And then like, what mm-hmm. happens then? Mm-hmm. You know, like how far does she end up, you know, walking up to the edge of the cliff before she has the moment where she realizes that like, she can't live like this, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and we know, we know because they keep, you know, like mentioning it in interviews and stuff. That Echo is going to be a huge part of that. Conflict yeah. Oh, as well. yeah. Yeah. Echo coming back. Yeah. You know, and Octavia not being willing to let go of who Echo had been as sort of spy, assassin, conclave mm-hmm. cheater, person who tried to kill Octavia almost successfully several times. You know, and that 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 is a kind of like main vector of conflict.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know,
1: with Bellamy. And also the you know and that that Bellamy sort of like attachment to Octavia remains a conflict between him and Echo, so that's another mm-hmm. sort of like that's a, that's a piece of it that will come back. But I, yeah, it'll be fascinating yes, to sort of watch I about that. Yeah. that get negotiated. Do you want to have a little OTP flailing time for each of us as a kind of like preview for our upcoming? Roundtable Very much flail so. podcast. We deserve
0: this. <laughs> Since we're
1: still we deserve this. So why don't we start with Cabby? Because you know we're we're in we've been in the bunker talking okay. about Kane.
0: Okay, so Tell me how
1: much you cried. Oh my god. Those scenes, by the way, I don't actually I don't actually like cry that much at TV. Like I you know, even if I'm really sad, like I might sort of start myself, you know, feel like, oh my god, I'm gonna cry or whatever, but I almost never actually shed tears. I actually shed tears. At the oh my Cain god! And Abby scene, no, like same. holy shit!
0: Oh, oh my, my god. god! Yeah, props, Anthony was tweeting last night, fully like this is the best scene in the entire series. Like it oh, was yeah, so, yeah. I mean, incredible! Oh my god, that was amazing! And I also think just to talk about Abby and Abby's arc for a second was hinted at in the previous episode that we had talked about before that addiction to those pills was going to become you know part of her big story. I feel like Paige in this episode. And the way it was written, too, like how well they juggled the complete sincerity of all of her emotions and how wrecked she is by this stuff. Also with a very, I think, compassionate but honest look at the reality of being an addict, which is that she still actually doesn't know if she can stop.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she will say anything. You know, she will say anything in the moment to try to hang on to Kane. to try to – she wants to quit, but she just –
0: yeah, but can't. she doesn't know if she can, she doesn't know if she's strong enough, yeah. and she doesn't know if she can survive without, you know, without pills, she can be a person without them. And and so even knowing that it's gotten so bad that it has landed Kane in a position where he could die twice in a row. That scene where she's you know, like trapped behind the door, pounding to get out, ready to confess, like ready to like turn her own self in just to save him. And then then we found out from Andrew later that like Kane had Andrew lock her up because he knew that she was gonna do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just her like Paige's performance is I mean, as incredible as everyone has been saying that it is like oh my god oh yeah oh yeah like just watching her fall apart the guilt and and the fear that she's experiencing you know when he's in the pit and then in that scene you know when he comes to her and like i just i mean i'm just like getting emotional i think about it but like (laughs) like they love each other so much and and yet you know the thing i think is really important about The way people are talking about it, I think sometimes there's there's stuff where you're kind of like, okay, like if you experience addiction or you know how addiction works, it's like none of this has anything to do with, you know, she doesn't love him any less. Mm -hmm. It's a thing that exists inside her that shapes her behavior that's unconnected to how deep and true and sincere her love is for him. It's like this other Mm -hmm. thing that controls her behavior that she feels like she can't, you know, that she can't stop. And so, you watching him say, you know, if I don't come back from this, like, you have to promise me that you will stop taking these pills. And the hundred thousand million emotions, you know, colliding on her face where it's like, she knows, like, She has to say this, like she has to give him that consolation, like that little bit Mm -hmm. of comfort that she can give him of him being able to believe that she'll be okay without him. Like the really heartbreaking thing to me
1: about that moment, the part that just like that's where I lost it, is that he has to make her promise, but I don't think he believes the promise either. He knows she can't make that promise, but he has to hear it. Like just the devastating irony in that moment of both of them saying these words to each other and both knowing that they have to say them and both knowing that they cannot possibly know if they're going to be, if they're true. You know, he has to believe it, but he's
0: asking her almost for a fiction. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that's so really shattering about that is how much it mirrors... You know, there were some really haunting kind of structural parallels in that scene to the, I can't do this again scene from season three, even down to like the buzzer and you know, like him coming in captive about to go to his death. And, but the difference in Abby mm-hmm. is so heartbreaking, you know, like before where she was mm-hmm. like, I'll do anything, like all, you know, I'll fight all whatever. And he's like, no, like it's okay. I'm resigned to it. And now it's like she's saying, I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever. And he knows like, but you can't though. Like it's, it's not that I'm going to say I'm not going to let you. It's that like anything that you do will make this worse. Yeah. But I think in both of those scenes, I think what's so, the, you know, the symmetry of it that's just so heartbreaking is that it's always Abby saying like, please let me fix this. Please let me do this. Please like, I can't, don't make me have to live without you. And it's always him saying like, both like, this is a thing that has to happen, but also, Trying to control the narrative to, like, minimize his own pain and regret. So, like, the first time, you know, in season three, it's that he won't let her kiss him when she, when you know, when she tries to kiss him. Mm-hmm. He won't let her put herself in danger, but he also won't let her say anything kind of that, like, defines their relationship or their feelings for each other because that would make it impossible for him to leave. Mm-hmm. He has to kind of, like, force her to, like, say, or in that case, kind of not say, the things that he needs in order to feel like he can sort of go to his death with a little bit more of a sense of acceptance. And I think the sort of parallels and reversals to that in, you know, in this one where it's like he has to hear her say out loud, like, I promise, I promise, I'll, you know, I'll give this up, I'll fight, I'll keep living, even though, like, it's not a certainty. Like, neither of them are sure that Mm -hmm. that that's possible at all. But he can't go until he hears her say it. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: You know, there's an extent to which I think the choice he makes to not fight is about Octavia. But the choice that he makes to to go, like to take the blame, you know, for this crime that he didn't commit is purely because, you know, it's the last thing that he can do to help save Abby. And, you know, and I just I just feel so like I in a million years, I would never have expected the depth and care with which this season already is letting us unpack the complexities of their relationship. Like you can love somebody so deeply and still be, you know, angry at them because you tried to kill yourself and they stopped you, you know, like Abby was in the previous Mm -hmm. episode. And you can love somebody with your whole heart and still not be able to, rewrite your brain chemistry to magically cure yourself of an addiction. Mm -hmm. Like the love for each other is so deep and so strong, but it's complicated by all of these other factors. You know, beyond that, that we're really getting a chance to like take that time and like dwell in those moments. And, you know, and I I feel like I could, you know, I could envision a like a lesser version of this show, a weaker version of the show that puts the whole focus of that on is Kane going to survive in the ring? And in this version of it, Kane's actual fighting is an afterthought. Like Kane, Kane getting to watch, you know, Henry Ian Cusick do a battle scene is the least important thing of this entire storyline. Mm-hmm. The entire emotional weight of it is about his relationships with Abby and with Octavia. Mm -hmm. And the entirety of that is like it's triangulated through his like love for these two women, you know, his love for Octavia and belief in the leader that she could be and his love for Abby and her refusal, you know, his refusal to let anything bad happen to her if he can protect her, even though he knows that now he's leaving her unprotected. Like if he dies, she has nobody. And there's only so much Indra can do. You know, there's like Jackson is, yeah. I'm sure, complicit. There's only so much Jackson can do, you know, and Jackson's loyalties are torn because he also has Miller.
1: There's a sort of tragedy to his decision, too, that it's almost like he knows the best thing that he can do for everyone is to go in that ring and not fight. And, you know, like for, for the whole for one crew, the best thing he can do is go in there and stand up and be the reflection of them that they don't want to see. Yeah. You know, and for Octavia, he can be the same sort of thing. You know, he can be the person who, t- who reminds her, you know, like, I understand why you did what you did and how we wound up here, but it's time to stop. That's how he can save Octavia, you know. And there's something tragic about the fact that with Abby, the way that he can save Abby is by going in that ring and dying, not just because he's taking her place in the ring. But because by doing that, it's the only way he'll stop enabling her. Yeah. Once he's gone, there's no one else to protect her, you know? And so yeah. there's like a weird way too where like his his self-sacrifice, and he's planning on dying, you know? Mm-hmm. And he knows that he's he's basically telling her, I'm not going to be here to protect you anymore. I think that there's also a way in which his self-sacrifice is also to save Abby in that kind of like broader sense. To put responsibility
0: for her life back on her shoulders and not on his anymore. I think that's a really important consideration to not lose sight of here is that like, you know, one of the things that is really painful about, you know, loving somebody who has an addiction is like six years in, six years into this addiction, he's still stealing medicine for her.
1: So when he's talking about, like, I'm complicit, I've been complicit yeah. in what we've become. Yeah. He's talking about Abby, too, mm-hmm. you know? He's yeah. been complicit in allowing her to continue to be addicted and to use without
0: getting caught. She's been using illicitly for six years, you know? Yeah. And he's been protecting her. What I think is really interesting about where this episode leaves off with them, you know, Abby – Taking a really interesting step to reclaim some agency mm-hmm. in sort of accepting, you know, like being willing to sort of be the bargaining chip, but coming along with her own demands that, you know, that get Kane safe from Octavia for now. But like Abby making an active choice, you know, I think what's really interesting about that is, you know, so now like, so Kane, Kane didn't die. Abby has a bag with a bottle of pills in it. What happens mm-hmm. next between the two of them? I think Dioza being somebody who is fantastically skilled at identifying weaknesses is going to latch on real, real fast to the fact that addiction is an extremely easy vulnerability to exploit.
1: I mean, that's the scary thing is that an addicted Abby is an Abby who can be so easily manipulated into doing things that she wouldn't normally do or like she'll at least be tempted to do things that she would want to do in order to get her hands on a fix.
0: Like that's fucking scary. The thing that I'm really interested in, you know, in how this sort of transpires is do we, you know, is her journey over the course of the season going to be, you know, this sort of internal war between you know, if, if Gioza figures this out, decides to leverage it, and takes control of the stash, then Abby's choices become have access to the drugs that she feels like she needs to be able to function, or to go through an absolutely brutal withdrawal to hold to yeah. her sense of morality and identity and not doing things that cross sort of ethical lines for her. And yeah. she'll have Cain and Raven, at least for a little bit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to support her through that. But I think, you know, everyone talking about like, oh my God, this is the year of Abby. This is like Paige's performance is amazing. Like I, you know, I feel like what we're gearing up for Is watching her like go through withdrawal in a particularly brutal way because the alternative to it is going to have to be saying yes to things that she doesn't want to do. Yeah, which is a fantastic challenge for an actress, (laughs) and allows Paige all kinds of you know fascinating you know places to go and things to do. But what I'm really excited about is the fact that you know at least as insofar as we've been able to see from all the information you know that we have that. She's going on this journey with Kane. Like Kane is there. Mm-hmm. It would have been so easy for this to be another, like, separate her in a doctor storyline and Kane's in the politics storyline. So he stays there to try to reason with Octavia and she goes off to be their science genius and sort of like a redux of season four. And the fact that the story kept them together, that Abby was basically like, this is a thing that I can do. Like, this is a sacrifice that I can make. Mm-hmm. Like, if I go mm-hmm. quietly, it's like this moment where we see and i think it starts when we watch her come up from the dark you know like i think one thing that mm-hmm. we haven't that we haven't addressed yet that we you know we've been talking about on twitter but but you know had not touched on here yet is the pandora's box ness of it all you know is the fact that like mm. you know pandora's box in the story the box gets opened and and every kind of monster and dark and bad and horrible thing comes out. And then the last thing out of the box is hope. And and the Kurt Vonnegut quote that, that Jason tweeted earlier this week before the episode aired, that was like, hope was the last thing out of the box and it flew away. And so I think, you know, people who are sort of watching that carefully noticed that Kane and Abby, whose storyline has pretty consistently orbited around Themes that relate to hope, you know, very textually in at some, at some points. Cain and Abby are the last two out, and they get on the ship and fly away. And they're the bargaining chip yeah. that keeps, you know, what what little possibility of peace there is. You know, like if Abby can heal whatever is wrong with Elegius, that gives Abby a phenomenal amount of bargaining power. But that also means that Abby represents Eligius's hope. Yes, yes, she's exactly. Their like hope she's hope for a cure. She's their hope for salvation. And she could significantly strengthen their hand against Octavia, which is something that comes with its own challenges. You know, if they, for some reason, are afraid that they can't survive on the ground and she fixes it so that they can, you know, they're a whole lot more invested in not giving up on Eden. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, I also think in a lot of ways, I think Cain represents hope in Octavia, that link that he provides to her humanity and to the possibility of the better leader that she could become. I think that there's a sort of a possibility of hope that they can become people that Dioza trusts enough that when, you know, when McCreary goes rogue and rebels or whatever, like if, if fracturing happens within the Elegious group, that Kane and Abby could be people that Dioza trusts enough that they could actually like, be part of the process of of making peace, you know? So I so I thought it was, yeah, that yeah. was really poignant that the two of them were the last out. But I think that for Abby, you know, I think there's something in that moment that happens where you see her kind of, like, close her eyes and feel the sun. In some small degree, I feel like she's already changing. And Clark is back. And Clark is back. God, and the reunion between the two of them was so, like, Clark having, I think very clearly been clued in as much as possible in that short walk by Indra to exactly Mm -hmm. what was going on because Clark arrived ready to kind of take charge. And it was so heartbreaking because it's like Clark has been through a lot and Clark deserved to like, just like have her mom hug her and be like, I'll take care of you. But instead, you know, she arrived having to have the roles completely reversed because her mom is like on the floor you know, half catatonic doesn't quite look like she even believes that Clark is really there for the first segment. Yeah. I mean, like, like watching Clark just sort of really gently be like, it's going to be okay. Like, I've got you, like immediately snapping into like, what do we do about Kane? Like, Clark and, and just sort of like teaming up to save them. It was so like, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was everything I wanted, but, but it was also, I think the hope, like Clark returning gives Abby a little spark of that hope back. They get out of the bunker. That's another piece Mm -hmm. of it. You know, that despair that was a factor, I think, in her feeling like she can't function without these drugs that was, was largely predicated upon two things that are no longer true, which is that we're trapped in here potentially forever and it's a horrible place to be. And I might never see my daughter again. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think just those two, Switches being flipped the other direction. She's already transforming. She's already becoming a new version of Abby, which is not to say that like that's all that it takes to like cure addiction. Like I do, like I for real think that like withdrawal is going to be a big part of her journey. Oh, yeah.
1: Especially if it's opioids, then I mean, like withdrawal oh, yeah. can be fatal
0: if you don't do yeah. it. Properly. Yeah, like under like medical supervision and like carefully. Yeah. 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 So, so I think it's going to be like a, you know, hard and brutal and scary journey over the course of the whole rest of the season for sure. But I feel like we're watching her begin to like make the choice in a way like where when she said it to Kane, she didn't really mean it or she didn't know if she, she didn't know what she meant. She didn't know if it was possible. You know, she was, she was saying the thing that she had to say. And I feel like from the way that we see the episode ending and her, you know, reclaiming some agency, her fighting to have, you know, Kane brought with her. She chooses Kane over Clark because in that moment she can tell, like, she knows Kane needs her mm-hmm. more than Clark does in that moment, which is also, I think says something about her recognizing Clark as an adult instead of a kid who needs to be parented, you know, like as much as she wants to like stay with her baby forever, it's kind of like, you know, right now the person who like, if she can pick one, she needs the one who's going to get executed if she doesn't pick him. Right. You, know? <laughs> you got to triage your bays. Yeah, 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 yeah. In order, in order of like most urgent priorities. <laughs> so I, so I liked that. You know, I think for both Kane and for Abby, you know, we took this journey with them into this incredibly just like the darkest place, the like most rock bottom of rock bottoms. And then we watch them rise, you know, like like literally out of the pit. <laughs> from and, the ashes, you know, the as sky. it were. <laughs> from the ashes, literally, yeah. Really very, very deftly done. But I like, you know, I feel like that in and of itself is a place of hope where like Kane's neck is spared for now. And, you know, and he and Abby have each other. And she's beginning to sort of take some steps to kind of finding her feet again and finding a purpose again. I'm really, really hopeful that we'll get, even, I I don't know how long they're all going to be sort of in the same space, but I I feel like this is a place where the relationship between Raven and Abby could become a huge factor. Because, like, Raven's going to get it. You know, like, Raven has been there. Raven knows from trying to hide from your own pain. And they had the same brain thing happen to begin with, you know. So I feel like, Raven potentially, you know, and Murphy, who also, you know, cares about Abby a lot, but like Raven, Raven and Kane together kind of helping Abby make the decision to try to figure out how to navigate this, I think could be really powerful. So sort of on a story level, I, I you know, those are sort of some of my many thoughts on just a pure shippy level, like the fact that Kane and Abby's love for each other was the A story of an episode. <laughs> was like, how? What? Why? What? What? Like, I would never have aspired this high. You know, like, I, like, this is, this is, it's so good. It's, like, beyond what I feel like I could realistically have anticipated. <laughs> and And I also, what I love about it is, like, you know, I think, I think a lot of times, especially in in dramas, there's this assumption that I think is sort of a, a, you know, a green kind of rookie writer's mistake where you think the only way to get, to make a relationship sort of like compellingly watchable is either the lead up to them becoming romantic or to like break them up and have like that kind of angst. But like when you see a relationship where it's like, You know, their love for each other is consistent and strong and like this defining force in both of their lives. And it's been so hard earned by all of this shit that they've been through individually and together to get to this point. And yet still, there is unfathomable depths of story that you can mine out of their relationship without detracting from that. Mm -hmm. Like the maturity and the kind of gravitas that the love between these two people is getting in the narrative. It's remarkable. It's astonishing to me. I think it's so important to show, you know, people like they're, you know, they're in their fifties. They have visible gray hair now. Like they've, you know, they've been through a bunch of shit, but like, you know, Abby is, is alive today because Kane got her through Mm -hmm. it. And Kane is alive today because he had Abby, Mm -hmm. like the six years of hell that they endured, they got each other through it. And I'm actually also really glad, like, I think, We were all a little paranoid in the beginning of the season that, like, how substantial of a plot point is Abby's anger at Kane for taking away her agency going to be? Like, you know, are they going to break up? Are they going to be, like, estranged for the first six episodes? And I think that the fact that I was actually dealt with pretty swiftly in this sort of, like, 45-day time jump and then resolved and then let us live with knowing that, like, they've spent those past six years, as hard as they've been, deeply, deeply in love with each other and being the only support the other one has because, like, if Clark is never coming back, like, Marcus is all she's got. And they're the, like, this is the other, if you want me to, like, just really briefly ruin you with emotions. (laughs) They're the last two survivors of their entire generation. Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. Every other ARC adult is dead. Yeah, you're like right. After Jaha died, they're it. There's oh nobody left except the two of them who shares the memories and the past that they share. You know, like Indra is an age peer, but not from their world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the kids were kids. Yeah. You know, like like even Bellamy, who's older, like the kids don't have the same shared experience. The kids don't remember the things Cain and Abby – like so we talk about like the power of memory, you know, the power of like holding on to or hiding from memories as like a a way, a thing that shapes who people are. You know, I think something that's really compelling about Cain and Abby is like it isn't just that, you know, they have this sort of shared bond of – you know, the six years in the bunker and the relationship that they forged there. But it's like, they've been the entirety of their lives. Like, and even if they didn't know each other, like, their whole lives, they've known each other for, like, decades. And they have a shared life experience of growing up on the Ark that is qualitatively different from everybody else's. And they're, like, the last two standing. Like, mm-hmm. just imagine, like, everyone that you grew up with is dead except one person. Wow. Yeah. That facet of it, too, like the the loss of their entire sort of world and way of life, except for people who were children at the time and each other. I think like that's something that I, you know, it hasn't really been addressed textually in any kind of a way, but it's a it's a factor, I think, in why they are so desperately of importance to each other and why the thought of losing him is so hard for Abby because if Kane's gone she has you know if Kane's gone and they think they're they're in this bunker potentially for indefinitely so she doesn't know when she's going to see Clark again you know there's nobody left that knows her and sees her and can share that piece of her so I've been sort of spiraling on that since Jaha died and thinking (laughs) about like oh my god like they're like that was he was the last one. Like that was it. Every, everyone else of the two of them is gone from their whole entire world, which is mind blowing to think about. Yeah, it really. You know? is. But yeah, but yeah. So I, so I am, I am super excited to. We know that they're in the next episode from the the little description is we see them adjusting to new, new sort of challenges which is
1: a hilariously vague sort of I know uh, I know euphemism like I reread really that say, uh, like the description knowing goes now. Down. yeah yeah. I was yeah. just like wow good job guys way to like yeah, yeah. say what is
0: technically <laughs> true without giving anything away <laughs> without giving anything away yeah <laughs> including like what planet they're on yeah yeah exactly <laughs> So yeah, so I'm just so I'm really I think just because they spent so much of season three and season four developing a romantic relationship in sort of fits and starts where like you know, like they kiss and then they're separated for six episodes. They have sex and then they're separated for like nine episodes. You know, so it's like like you'd you'd get some forward trajectory in their relationship with each other, and then immediately they will be put into separate storylines where she's a doctor and he's a diplomat, and they're like in totally different parts of the world for huge stretches of time. And that doesn't really let their relationship breathe. And so we've never gotten to see a sustained stretch of time of who these people are to each other in like, not even just the six year time jump relationship, but like in any kind of romantic relationship to like sort of live with that and let it breathe. And, you know, and how has it changed them and shaped them? And also in the particular circumstances, you know, how is that, love for each other in additional sort of points of pressure that Dioza can leverage you know Mm -hmm. so it opens up like it opens up some problems too because she knows at this point now like okay so this one will do anything to keep that one alive this one will do anything to keep that one alive logging that away in my file of blackmail opportunities yes and she knows that about Bellamy and Clark too Yes, yeah, so now switching to
1: to your turn, bring us home. Um, well, first of all, I would just like to point out that Dio's referred to Bel- Clark as Bellamy's girlfriend, so, you know, we all were, like,
0: spiraling around for, like... <laughs> A long time. (laughs) I will confess, not to burst your bubble, but then Maura explained to me why I was wrong. I thought that she meant Echo because she said Clark's name previously and that she's like, something, something, Clark. And then like the hostage and his girlfriend. And I was like, oh, wait, is this like, now that we know that Echo was supposed to be in the car with him, I was like, is this like a weird holdover from the version of the script where Echo was there? But then Maura was, and and Crystal were like, well, they didn't shoot any of that. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> no, she meant Clark because he swooped in at the last minute. And was like, "Yes, I will kill two hundred eighty-three
1: people to save her." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just. The fact that, you know, it is one of those things too, like you were saying with being like, I cannot believe that we got, you know, an actual A plot cabbie are in love with each other sort of thing. Like, I never expected that we'd actually get a scene that was just Bellamy and Clark alone in a room together to like have a sweet and tender reunion, hug each other and gaze, you know, like wonderingly at each other and have... Clark murmur, like, are you really here? You know, like, for an extended period of time, relatively speaking, without other people around or, like, Luna's Navy SEALs rising up out of the ocean to interrupt them or <laughs> anything like that. I mean, it was just, like, such a beautiful little mind-boggling that we sort of got that whole scene. And and to go back to the beginning, you know, again, like, the fact that they would take the time for that kind of scene, take, yeah. like, a full, like, minute and a half to sort of pause and just show here's this relationship that is like a core relationship of the show you know like Jason referred is like one of the spines of the show is Bellamy and Clark and their bond with one another and what they mean to one another and their sort of like partnership with one another and so we got this sort of moment where they could really just have a moment to realize you know outside of the panic of we are surrounded by the enemy who might at any moment choose to kill us both sort of stopping wrap their heads around you know like heads and hearts around the fact that here they are they're alive that she's actually alive that she survived that he's there and then of course all the camera just like lingering on his hand on her back and then like shot down the hall of them her breaking the hug like oh my god is someone around like yes it was amazing <laughs>
0: and it's like also just beautiful so much <laughs>
1: the reason that i love you know that i ship balerica the reason why you know that i love that relationship is just because of that really intense bond the fact that they mean so much to each other you know and that they have this sort of sense of like whether or not it is ever romantic on any level that they are kind of each other's person and in this really sort of profound way that kind of goes beyond mm-hmm. any other person that either of them that's in, in each other's lives. And so it was like also just beautiful to kind of have that moment to sort of like reestablish that and reaffirm it and have that and sort of watch them yeah. like look at each other and sort of have this moment of, you know, there's just like the sheer relief on it. Like on Bellamy's part, I think it's more difficult because there's more disbelief. There's more he thought she was gone. You know, he's sort of having to kind of like readjust his entire world around the fact that she's alive and she's here, but just like the sheer relief on Clark's face. Of yeah. Like, he's here, he's real. When he says, you know, she asks after Maddie, he says, like, she's safe, you know, we have her, that look at it, like, of yeah. just, like, yeah. sheer joy of, like, Ugh. like it's not just that, like, he's alive and Maddie's alive, it's the sense of, Bellamy's here, he took care of Maddie, Maddie's mm-hmm. gonna be okay, oh my god, I have someone else here who I can trust with Maddie, like, just the, the sheer relief of, like, yeah. the world off her shoulders because Bellamy is back and he can share the burden with her, you know, I thought was just, like, so beautiful, and that, you know, that at the end where says, like, I made a deal that kind of like hey partner okay here we go here here's the status everything's cool like all right what are we gonna do now sort (laughs) of
0: (laughs) i think the fact that she knows just instinctively she gets that he gets exactly how important maddie is and no one had to explain it Mm -hmm. to him that he knows her so well that like he knew like that'd be the first thing that she would ask yep And he's got her taken care of. He's not like, oh, yeah, I don't know. She's somewhere. You know,
1: he's like, yeah, got her. It's cool. But, you know, she's with the people. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know me, I would never endanger a little girl. (laughs) Especially with dark hair and blue eyes. (laughs) He reminds me of Octavia. But. (laughs) Excuse me. Yeah. (laughs) And then the fact that we also got to, like, watch the scene, like, not just seeing Raven, you know, kind of have the relief of, of hearing that Clark is alive, but also getting to see Clark on the other end talk to her, getting to see Bellamy sort of witness that scene, and just, like, the sheer joy on all of their faces of, like, oh, thank God, like, we're back again. I mean, like, my Braven Lark feels were, like, off the chart. Bellamy and Clark together talking to Raven like, "Oh yes, okay, all right." The three of us are together. Oh my it's god! It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. Like at long last, we have each other. You know. Yep.
0: Yes. It was. It was a beautiful thing. And oh my god, the Raven Lark <sighs> content was more than I feel I could possibly have right. <laughs> have dreamed of. Jason said there was going to be a hug. I didn't know it was going to be two
1: hugs, <laughs> and like Bellamy touching your shoulder to get her attention. I mean, there's all sorts of things. But like. I wasn't expecting to have like a whole Lark scene. Like that whole scene of just like yeah, the three yeah. of them kind of. And you know, just like being so happy to be reunited. Mm-hmm. To know that everyone's alive. You know, we're together again. We're working together again. We're all gonna we're gonna make it through somehow. Like I just, I like smile like a doofus every time. I've rewatched those scenes obviously many <laughs> times. And the whole time I was just standing there was just like a grin on my face. She's like, oh yay, yeah, I'm so happy. Like it's me who's having this re- reunion somehow. (laughs) But just like, you know, just just that pure, simple joy, I think is something that We so rarely have gotten to experience with the show in the last couple seasons that to get that and then to get to kind of stay with it for a moment is just so special, even knowing that it's a moment, that it's going to end, that by the end of the season, everything is fucked again. And I'm sure that Bellamy and Clark are going to wind up (laughs) at Loggerhead, you know, they're going to wind up in conflict again. There's Mm. Something's going to come up where, like, what Bellamy needs to do for his group of people is going to be different from what Clark needs to do for her and Maddie or whatever. Like, obviously this can't last, but... That doesn't take away from the importance and the power of those moments. Anyway, I mean, like that's life, you know. Right. Like everything will pass.
0: Yeah, the bad moments
1: will pass and the good moments will pass. But it's still important to experience those good moments as good moments and really like feel them and linger with them because that's what makes it all count.
0: Yeah, you know, makes it and all I, I think in so. the show that's like what we were saying before, like that's where the emotional stakes come yeah. from. Is that we take all of these beats to like recenter. On the importance of all these relationships so that then inevitably, you know, when this shit hits the fan, like if conflict arises between Clark and Bellamy about what to do between Bellamy and Octavia, as you know, we already seen happening, like we've been re-centered in just the magnitude of how much these people all matter to each other. You know, we got to sit there quietly and take that time with those two people in that room. And it didn't detract anything from, like, the crazy high-stakes action plot, mm-hmm. but it was just, like, this beat that we needed. And also because I think it would have felt unsatisfying if we hadn't, I think, gotten that moment because it was so clear, you know, and Jason mentioned this in his inside the episode thing, that, you know, like, there's an extent to which Clark, at the end of the previous episode, isn't totally sure that he's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, isn't yeah, totally yeah. sure that she's not... <laughs> Like, pain hallucinating <laughs> this. So that, you know, her sort of dazed little, like, as she's sitting up and being like, wait, nope, okay, the blinding light's gone, and the shock collar's gone, but he's like, this must be actual belly, Right, right. <laughs> oh, my God. And he it, runs to her side. The way that you feel, you know, the relief that it must be for Clark, who's been, like, single parenting for six years and is now trying to single parent through a massive crisis of, you know, people trying to take her home away, just to have, like, another adult...
1: Yeah. And to have it be Bellamy, like the person that she's always been able to sort of relax around, express, you know, like the person that she can sort of express her doubts to be vulnerable with the person she can relax and say, like, I don't know if I did the right thing there. A partner, you know, like that she's got not just anyone, but her partner back. Like, I mean, just again, like the sheer relief of like you're home. Oh my God. Thank God you're home that we got to sort of Mm -hmm. like watch that reality hit them and like we got to sort of see and experience what being reunited and and seeing the other person alive means to each of them I think was just you know and also to experience what it meant to Bellamy that she saved them all. That she that he got to thank her. And what it meant to her to hear that her sacrifice mm-hmm. was worth it. That they're all still alive. You know? It, just, yeah. it was like, I mean, it's interesting because like that scene was almost like the end of an arc. That's the scene that wraps up everything yes. that was yes. set up at the end of the next season. Yes. And whatever happens next is the beginning of the next arc. You know? So like, this is the resolution yes. before the next sort of set of
0: developments and complications happen, whatever they are. But as a resolution to that arc, I'm It was so beautiful. It, it made me so emotional just to like I was just, I was just so happy for both of them like particularly for, for Clark who's had a much worse go of it you know recently and in over the past six years you know where like Bellamy had had more stability but like also like Bellamy like we talked about before with Raven like Bellamy's been so shaped by his sense of responsibility for Clark's loss that watching him get to not just like remove that burden from himself but also to have his person back is really poignant and powerful and for Clark who's been like keeping these people alive in her mind because she was so desperately sad that they weren't there for real to have him back there for real is like it's like you just deserve this bull so much you've been through so much crap <laughs> <laughs> uh. I do have one last Little thought
1: when we were, because you mentioned like the Pandora's box thing. And I think we've mostly been thinking about the bunker as Pandora's box. So I was trying to think of other things that could be like sort of construed as potential Pandora's boxes in this episode. And one of them is the cargo pods, which do open in this episode. Uh, Or not the cargo, the cryopods. Um, So that's that's another Mm -hmm. sort of box that opens. But I was also thinking that Shaw spends this episode trying to open something. Like he's trying to get into mm-hmm. the computer mm-hmm. to open the pods. Mm-hmm. And Raven's mm-hmm. trying to keep mm-hmm. them shut. And then Raven's trying to get to open the box of Elegious secrets. Yeah. And she releases all oh, of them true. but one.
0: So, ooh. So I sort of want. Which would fit very nicely with that being the season resolution. Like, yeah. if 3 becomes part of the end game. I like that. I like that. Ooh, God, you're smart. <laughs> There's two ways to think about that. Either she opened the box and everything escaped but one,
1: Elegius three, So that's hope. And then also you could, the other way to think about it, and, you, and I think both of these could be in play, is that there is that Elegius three, that set of secrets, is a remaining Pandora's box
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: that has not yet mm-hmm. been opened but that will be open later. So that's my parting thought on Pandora's box. And next week, we'll be back with 505, which is called Shifting Sands, which will be full of gross stomach stuff, which I will have to remember not to eat any meat for dinner <laughs> that <laughs> night before I watch that episode, because love. <laughs> it sounds wonderfully gross yay but also lots of other good stuff so we will see you then or not see you I always say see you but we won't ever actually see any of you in a real way but we will talk at you again (laughs) Oh, and then in the meantime, (laughs) the special B'lark flailing pod will go up probably Sunday. I think we're going to record it Saturday night. So this pod, if you are listening, when it goes up, will go up on Saturday sometime. So probably tomorrow for you guys, the B'lark pod will go up. And then there will be a cabbie one as well coming up.
0: Yes, which will go up on the 29th. There's no new episode after, I believe it's after Either 505 or 500, I mean, it's 505 one is, is May 29th. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They're rerunning the first one instead. There's are like a, taking like a little week break. So, so we're going to have a couple of fun surprise things for you going up in that week to, well, not surprises because I already told everyone, but <laughs> bonus, exciting, fun, bonus things to help fill up your, your week of no new episodes. So that, that'll be when we'll do the Cabbie roundtable. And then also, that'll probably be when we post our interview with Louisa Dolavis. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so lots of fun things. We'll try to, you know, f- fill up the hundred-shaped hole in your life during that week as much as we can. Yes. But in the meantime, uh, we look forward to flailing about this amazing season more with you next week. And we will talk to you soon. Bye! Bye!